Hello again. Here we are with the grand finale. My name's Leon. I'm here with Ryan. Hello. And this is the fifth and final session of the Cane and Rinse team's 2019 gaming discussions. Thanks everyone for sticking with us. I don't know how many people are realistically hearing this and at what point in the year you are hearing this. Uh, maybe you're just dabbling in the first 20 minutes of each of these before promptly turning them off. That's kind of a it's kind of a bad way to uh, uh, for me yeah, to expect people to engage with it. No, I'm sure you just want to get a, a sampling. You're you're jumping in the first 20 minutes because you're just so excited to listen to each of them that right. you can't contain right. yourself. Yeah, good point. <laughs> uh, or you love these intros so much. I mean, we don't care if they actually listen. We still get a download figure, right? That's why we do these, the download figures. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. It's the Patreon dollars. Yeah. The, the download figures convert into Patreon dollars. Patreon.com slash Kane and Rinse. If you've enjoyed this week's efforts, actually, Ryan gets very little out of the Patreon. But, uh, <laughs> so, but you know, he's uh, he's done this mainly for the love. What is in session five? Session five. This is the final session, and it is just myself and Chris O'Regan. So expect Ooh. the most indie of indie games you could imagine. It's going to be on the spectrum. Yep. A deep dive into games you've probably never heard of before. Uh, we are we're probably two of the more hipster folks on the team. Um, <laughs> as far as like keeping up with like the minutia, but we do round it out. Not only with uh, with indie oddities like Fimble and Astrologaster, but also with mm. uh, some of the bigger games of the year. Um, uh, Disco Elysium is in this chapter. Uh, Pokemon Sword and Shield, uh, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. So you know we do oh, cool. we do bring right. in some of the the big hitters as well. So that's very on brand, Caden Rince, yeah. covering <laughs> the gamut. Uh, yeah, you mentioned Astrologaster there, mm -hmm. which I which I haven't played, but uh, I saw crop up today. It was the, the developer or the publisher, I can't remember which, tweeting about the fact that the uh, British uh, left-wing newspaper outlet, The Guardian, uh, published an article today which was if effectively collecting pieces from its uh, different entertainment writers to basically say, uh, now that election happened, here's some things which will help you cope. Hmm. There were as music and TV shows and various other things, but there's also Keith Stewart put together some games and Astrologusta is in the, uh, and probably some of the other stuff we've covered as well, games that will help you cope oh, with, it, you know, unless you're celebrating <laughs> the recent election results, in which case you're probably not listening to this podcast. But but yes, for, for plenty of us, uh, there's some... Some things to enjoy there. And yeah, so it sounds like Astrologaster is something that will give you nice, nice feelings, nice things well, to think on about. On the subject of Astrologaster, and we do, since it is alphabetical, the first game we talk about, we're going to be hitting the same point very quickly. But um, oh, good. Uh, there's a, not not about the newspaper. That That's entirely new no, information and very that's cool. New. We have a uh, interview with the composer of Astrologaster's right. puzzlingly unique soundtrack, which is all yes. choral arrangements, oddly enough, mm. uh, kind of unprecedented in video games, to my knowledge, interviewed on um, Sound of Play 229, which went out in the middle of December of 2019, whenever you're listening to this. Kind of a Christmas show. Yeah, so if if that game sounds like it strikes your fancy, or if you're just interested in somebody doing something wildly different with video game music, then you can uh, tune in on uh, uh, to our um, our pre-Christmas sound of play. So, uh, well, without further ado, then it's over to you and Chris. 
straight into session five of the end of year show. So thank you everyone who has stuck around with us for uh, the the previous shows. Um, I've been on a couple of them already, and so uh, I've uh, I've just played a lot of games this year. <laughs> I've got a lot to talk about. Try to spread it out a little bit. Anyways, just to reintroduce myself and to introduce another familiar voice onto the podcast today. Um, I am Ryan Heyman, and I'm joined uh, solely and exclusively today by Chris O'Regan. How is everyone doing listening to this fine show, probably stuffed with turkey and or ham, depending on what part <laughs> of the world you're from, and um, I don't know, mince pies. Oh no, again, that's a British thing, sorry. So I, I guess as a way of uh, of kind of prepping this, um, I think it's worth noting you know, you have your own podcast, the uh, the Sausage Factory, which is also on the Canon Rinse Network, and I think that is um, is that kind of primarily your way into playing a lot of these games. Are these games that you've played in preparation for talking to some of the folks, or is it just out of personal interest? And then if it uh, if if a game strikes you as being special enough, then you'll seek out an interview. All of the above. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's sometimes I will discover a game on Twitter. Oh, look at that. That looks like fun. So, yeah, it's it, that's happened a couple of times recently this year. First time, actually, that I saw a game on Twitter. Someone linked it, liked it, and I just spoke to the developer and got them on the show. But sometimes it's recommendations from others, uh, including yourself. And, uh, yeah, it's it's all, some of it is I see a show, like a EGX or a, or a PAX or something, and then I'll, I'll that's how I'll get, you know, find interest in the game. One of the games on here was was drawn from me just walking by a booth. Like, what what is that? What what, what, what you someone's made this? All right, so getting into the list of games that we're going to be talking about today. The first one on the list is one that both of us have played uh called Astrologaster. Mm. For uh listeners of Sound of Play, I had the chance to sit down with the composer and uh do a quick little interview which is uh, which is interesting um, if anyone has has played the game because the music is a very foundational aspect of its identity. I would say it's a it's unavoidable in um, in how kind of unique and definitive to the whole experience it is. And so, if you are interested in learning more about a very interesting <laughs> game soundtrack, um, head back to Sound of Play two hundred and twenty nine, which was released on the eighteenth of December and uh, learn all about Astrologaster's music there. But for now, we're here to talk about the game, the gameplay, the music if we want to, of course. Um, and uh, basically, my, my overall impression, I played this one on iPad, uh, which I think is a great place to play it. Um, it's a just a remarkably interesting game. So you play a doctor um, in the times of, of Shakespeare, essentially, whatever that <laughs> period, the, you know, would, would that be Victorian or pre-Victorian? Elizabeth, I don't, I don't Elizabethan. Know. Elizabethan. Elizabethan. There we go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I can't keep up with your silly royalty. <laughs> <laughs> Not can I. Not can Prince Andrew. Carry on. Um, practicing without a medical license but rather uh, reading the stars to diagnose patients yeah and um i don't know i was uh i was interested in this premise because it took a little while to kind of unfold in my mind exactly what's happening because it seems like a very low friction type of game um you're trying to present uh, diagnoses that are accurate or that would satisfy the, the 
um, the querents that are coming to get a sense of what's, you know, physically ailing them um, or psychologically the, ailing the them. The querent is someone who's a, basically a patient. They mm-hmm. call them querences. Yep. The, the, the words are, terminology is quite like humor, ill humor, and um, mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of strange sort of phrases that they generally thought were real, like, no, no, these things aren't real. <laughs> You're just making <laughs> it up. But yeah, carry on. As somebody comes to your door and explains what's wrong with them, then you'll be presented with kind of like an astrological chart in a way with uh, several, with a few different kind of buckets of options. And then each bucket of option contains several uh, astrological signs that you can read in the night sky. And then each one will kind of point to a different explanation for what's going on with the, uh, with the patient. It's interesting because... At first, it just feels like kind of arbitrarily choosing between different buckets. You have a sense of this is probably, you know, being a 21st century person, uh, probably better equipped <laughs> to be a doctor in this time period than the actual person who's uh, practicing um, this. And so, you know, you can uh, you can pretty easily most of the time kind of suss out what's going on and then provide an accurate diagnosis and then I kind of thought, is is that kind of the point of it? You know, is the fact that he's consulting with the stars and then we, a 21st century person, are making a diagnosis. Technically, he is consulting a higher power from the future to diagnose people in his present era. And so, you know, on that level, like that's that's kind of a cool way of of operationalizing uh, what is a uh, a pretty straightforward, just kind of multiple choice uh, type of um, character-driven adventure game. But really, like, I, I, the, the appeal of the gameplay doesn't lie in the challenge. It lies in the stories and the characters and the presentation and all of that. And so it's, a, it, it's an interesting title. What did you make of this one, Chris? Uh, I had a very different tack on it because you're right. You could sit there and sort of diagnose going, oh, they've clearly got insert ailment here um, of some kind of... Um, debilitating disease or something like that and a fundament that's something i say a lot in this is another word <laughs> i was thinking of there's not no such thing as a fundament uh, and um uh, rather than actually trying to project my 21st century sensibilities onto the game which i think can actually hinder you somewhat i would actually try to maneuver the main protagonist who you're playing this 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 person who's real, by the way, it does exist. He did. Um, he was mm. an actual person, uh, but this is all dramatised and a little bit sort of tweaked and um, made a little bit more fruity, should we say, mm-hmm. to uh, make it more entertaining. And uh, it's this is a comedy game, just, just to be clear. And uh, it's more like a farce, a silly farce. There are times when you find yourself, you made certain decisions, certain recommendations, and then you find yourself. Uh, in, a, in a bit of a quagmire, and you basically give a diagnosis, not on the basis of the actual ailment, just to get yourself out of trouble. <laughs> and uh, that's something mm-hmm. I would find myself doing, and that's that's what drove me on more. Uh, also, the humour, the the music, which I think we're going to have to talk about, because I know you've got a, yeah, an interview, but uh, the, the, the Elizabethan sort of chanting and singing. It's not in Old English, I'm happy to say, otherwise it would be incomprehensible. But it is in modern English, but it's sung in a certain way. And it's just hilarious. <laughs> it made, you know, there are... I played it on my phone, but my phone was um, was, was a 10, was, uh, iPhone X when I was playing it. I've, you know, 
that phone has since gone, but it's perfectly playable on that platform as well. So um, I actually demoed this a lot at various shows. I've seen it evolve over time, and I've had the developers on on the Sausage Factory. So um, yeah, wonderful, wonderful game. It's won all sorts of awards and that kind of thing for for good reason. But uh, what tell us what's your your thoughts on, on the music? Did you find it funny as well as well done? I guess just to kind of put a broad overview out there, if anyone has missed the sound to play interview, it's all um, all choral music yes. and all composed in that uh, in that older style, which I always just kind of associate with um, with sacred music, you know, because the church were the ones that were yeah. <laughs> that were funding the development of the arts at the time, um, which is kind of funny because your character is. Um, operating in direct opposition of of the church, the church were the ones that uh, oversaw uh, the medical practice at the time, and so being an unlicensed professional, then uh, it was kind of the church that was on your uh, breathing down your neck to try to kind of take you down. Um, but yeah, I uh, uh, every character and every chapter really starts with a. Uh, a really beautifully and intricately composed choral piece that uh, kind of explains who the character is, where they are in their story. And it's, it's very funny. It's um, you know, there's so many kind of like layers of voices on top of each other that it can be kind of hard to pick out the words when just listening to it, which might be a bit of a shame, but just watch those subtitles. There's, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah. It comes off like a Monty Python type of setup, I'd say. It does. A little bit of Blackadder as well. Can't avoid that because mm-hmm. of Elizabethan theme, but it is more subtle. So I think you're right. It's probably more Monty Python or or maybe even Pratchett-like, actually, in some regards. Because um, mm-hmm. it does too. One thing Terry Pratchett did with his books, he dealt more with people more than anything and what they did and what they would say and why they would say them. And uh, that's what it felt like for me. It was... Uh, a wonderfully written farce based on real real life events, which is quite an achievement. So well done, Yam Yam, who are the makers and, and publishers of, of said game. That's very interesting. That's a it's a cool little game. You can pick it up on uh, on iOS, Mac, and PC, and uh, that'll take us into the next game that we're going to talk about today, which yeah. is uh, about its opposite in every way. <laughs> this is Creature in the Well. Uh, which is one that I was introduced to uh, because we featured it in a um, one of our Nindy showcases back when I worked at Nintendo. And so, you know, I got to kind of work with the team um, in putting that together and then work with the team again when it ended up launching onto Xbox Game Pass. And so, you know, this game has been kind of following me around from career to career. And uh, it, it's an interesting title. You spoke to the developers. Uh, why don't you give an explanation as to what the gameplay is? Because it's super unique. Yeah, but it's easy to describe, I'm happy to say. It's unique, mm-hmm. but very straightforward, relatively speaking. You, it is a third-person action adventure, and you play a robot that's been awakened for reasons that even the robot does not know and eventually does find out, but no spoilers. This robot goes into the this dark sort of tank cavern, and finds itself confronted with a broken, vast machine, which was once controlling the environment of the area, which is now a desolate wasteland. Sounds all sort of, you know, a bit post-apocalyptic sort of day rigueur stuff. Absolutely. Until you discover the gameplay mechanic, which is based on, or wait for it, 
pinball. No, I'm not joking. There's a little ball or balls that you fire around with a implement, sometimes a wooden spoon, sometimes a great weapon of sword and destruction, but ultimately it's some kind of bat. And you use this bat to fire off and create combinations. Uh, you have to hit certain things a certain rhythm, and once that does... Once you get that and you actually charge up these weapons and you get enough um, charge in, in the ball itself, you can then sort of gather that and use that to open up doors and go deeper and deeper into the machine, which you're charged, apparently, your job, is to repair it. But there's something in there that doesn't want you to repair it, namely the creature. And uh, he's, uh, he's a great um, antagonist, I, I find. He's the great villain that uh, loves toying with you. Um, but uh, I think that's an accurate description. Have I missed anything? Yeah, it, it's a really cool game. Um, it, it's neat to see, you know, pinball is something that uh, real pinball enthusiasts keep going on and on about the really deep mechanics of many of the most well-designed tables and the fact that you can kind of play out entire storylines across things that change across the table when you, you know, when you end up hitting certain objects, then they'll make way for uh, other things to appear on the table and you can kind of initiate this entire sequence of events that you know it's something as somebody who doesn't really play a lot of pinball I kind of hear those stories and it always kind of amazes me like wow I didn't think there was really that much to this um, this mechanical uh, table game um, and I, I think that there's a lot of crossover between uh, pinball enthusiasm and video game developers because uh, pinball is one of those mechanics that is, uh, I'd say, quite often uh, intermixed with other genres these days, especially. Um, but, you know, there's uh, Creature in the Well this year. We had Yoku's Island Express, which was a 2D platformer Metroidvania game uh, with uh, pinball elements uh, last year, a couple of years ago. Um, there was uh, Demon's Tilt, which just came out uh, this month, actually, which is a very um, more straightforward pinball game, but has a kind of heavy metal, uh, demon-y type of uh, aesthetic to it. There's, you know, going all the way back to Sonic Spinball with uh, Sonic the Hedgehog playing as a, a modified pinball game and um, Pokemon Pinball, Metroid prime pinball like it's it's interesting to see uh it's like the the cranberry of games in that it intermixes with everything else to make all kinds of different juices i think the major difference between those games you just mentioned there and this one is that you are not playing the ball if i didn't make that clear i apologize mm. but the robot himself is just a bipedal right. robot that hits balls he doesn't become the ball well, unless he hits it. Yeah, there's not even really an analog for that no. character within pinball. You're not the bumpers because you're not uh, you're not locked into into one place. Um, but it's so it, it's interesting. I um, enjoy playing this game because it's uh, it's fairly forgiving. I'm not right at the end yet. I'm I'm sure it might boost up in difficulty towards the end, but at least at the point in the game that I am, it's still pretty forgiving. You don't need to collect every point on the board to progress in the game. But as somebody who kind of values the uh, the completionism and and seeing my score consistently rise, uh, as you 
as you hit bumpers throughout the room, then it'll give you energy and you can use that energy to open doors and stuff like that. So it kind of serves as like a like a loose currency that acts as like keys in the Zelda dungeon in a way. But there's a, a lot of the more difficult rooms, the ones that require you to bounce balls in a very particular pattern and array within a strict time limit. I just find myself like I'm just not really able to do those. And uh, I, I don't know. Is there some sort of secret? Is there something I'm missing? Because I can I can aim at a bumper for an hour with what I think is the direction that I'm supposed to be hitting the ball. And it will just, you know, maybe hit the desired pathway one every 10 times. Like, what is your... Uh, what is your experience with with the difficulty? Um, it's variable depending on the puzzle, and also mm-hmm. the boss fights can be well. Say boss fights, the encounters with the creature yeah. uh, are, are variable. I do like the signals that the game gives you. The bad things about to happen where you're standing. Yeah, move, move now, and, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. that's lovely. Um, I did enjoy that. It, it gives you a, it does mean you have to your your attention has to be directed at a lot of things while you're trying to do stuff. And you have like fractions of a second to actually do some damage before you then must flee. Um, as regards to the puzzles, I do find there's a lot of markings. I do follow, mm-hmm. just look at the markings where the arrows are pointing, where they're like, oh, I see, what if I hit that there? Because that's what pinball tables do. They actually give you little, mm-hmm. with the, all the indicators that are saying, oh, if you went there, if you hit that and you push that there and you actually, this light is flashing for a reason, you might want to throw the ball this way. Totally up to you though, you can carry on doing what you're doing but you know if you want to progress anyway right over there and that's I think the developers tried to do that tried to emulate that the developers did admit they didn't like pinball I'm not kidding they were not <laughs> actually very keen on the game at all or the, the genre at all however they, the third person action adventure and the, the story they have to tell felt that this kind of um, aligned itself to this kind of skill puzzle mm-hmm. There are times when you know what to do, but uh, you just can't do it, and that's all. It, that can be frustrating. Whereas this, it's a, it's a little bit the other way. It's like you're not entirely sure what the puzzle is, but I know, let's just jam the button for a few times and see if that works. Button mashing sometimes works with these puzzles, but not always. I've found most times, seven times out of ten, button mashing or just sort of trying to splash the ball around. No, you just got to be. There's got to be some sort of lexicon you're familiar with with regards to pinball to get the most out of Creature in the Wall. Well, I'm not going to lie to you about that. I do believe that's true. However, uh, if you do come at, come at it from a completely uh, sort of a novice sort of um, aspect from pinball, you still get enjoyment out of it. You just got to learn how they work. I love the presentation as well. Everything mm. is a, it looks like a very drawn style, like a like a comic book. Um, very thick lines on everything and, and usually only maybe three or four colors on any screen. Yeah. And those colors just become so, so good later in the game. I mean, they start out strong. They're very eye-catching. Yeah. But later in the game, they really start going with like really eye-catching, really abstract colors. And, you know, with so few colors on screen, they really pop and uh, create a really bold and really um really confident uh look of the game it's um it's it's a lovely game to look at and there's not much music but whenever you die then you are kind of respawned within a village outside of this uh just giant um cave that you're exploring and uh that village has a theme kind of like firelink shrine in uh, dark souls just that that little bit of like haunting piano music every time always kind of gets me it doesn't 
tell you a lot. I mean, the actual, it's not, not a lot of feedback to the player. It, it assumes a lot. It assumes that you know that, oh, just move the left stick, you know how to do that. And yeah, it doesn't tell you anything. Even when the game opens, there's nothing. It doesn't, do, doesn't seem mm. to tell mm. you to press any buttons. It just assumes, like, go on, then off you go. What? Cool. I think everybody must sit at that first screen for quite a while yes. before realizing that they're in control. They're in control. Because it's a big title screen. It was just like, it's, the first time I saw that was a game called Blue Dragon. I'm not sure you're mm-hmm. familiar with it. Uh, on the Xbox 360, it's a Japanese RPG. And uh, that has that where you're walking along and you realize, oh, wait, I'm on the title screen. I, I, I've never <laughs> seen it before, but they, they've done it here. But. Yeah, um, big thumbs up. Um, I'm happy that we're talking about it again. So, yeah, good game. Yeah, good one. Let's move on to the next game. Uh, this is a, a very highly acclaimed uh, CRPG that kind of seemingly came out of nowhere. It's been in uh, early access, not early access, but rather uh, Kickstarter type funding scenarios for a while. And so it's kind of been in the public eye, but um, it just released onto this onto the scene a new team making a a bold first impression. This is Disco Elysium, which I've been playing a lot of recently, and I'm uh, I'm really really loving it. This is this is an incredible game. It's probably the best written game that I've ever played. You know, CRPGs are, kind of live and die by the story that they tell. There's that ideal that you have in your mind. You know, it's like if only we could have a system that was completely reactive to what the player does if there's some sort of uh of ai that could derive and kind of just be like a like a a good dungeon master in a dungeons and dragons game uh, and and there are teams that are trying that you know the, there was a a interesting title that came out uh, earlier this month called ai dungeon 2 that was just made in google sheets and it allows you know it, it is pretty much an ai driven uh, text adventure game which is you know a very very interesting um probably worth discussing if we had a little bit more time to play it before uh before the recordings but um anyways i digress uh the only alternative to creating uh a an ai that is as smart as a person writing a story is to have some uh self-punishing group of individuals decide to intricately and uh, just as a absolute labor write out every possible combination of solutions of of different branching pathways and stuff in a way that was exciting and and relatable and interesting and compelling and that seems to be kind of what disco elysium is there's so many different branching pathways and so many different small choices that have compounding effects down the line that it just it it feels impossible that it exists like it's such a such a kind of a grand labor that they've done to create this game uh i should uh back up and give a bit of a premise um this is kind of a it's a bit bleak um but it has a bit of a sense of humor to it it's a crpg for um for those of you who don't know that's a, a computer rpg which is generally kind of a an isometric usually kind of stats and dice roll based uh game um oftentimes based off of D roots uh so a lot of the most famous ones from the past are like planescape torment fallout um 
Divinity Original Sin 2 is a, a really highly acclaimed one from just a couple of years ago. You know, this is a, a genre that, uh, that has existed for a while. And, um, but it, it's always, it's always been something that I feel kind of, um, encourages the hardcore engagement because there are so many systems within systems and, you know, all of the different layers of armor and buffs and magical spells and all these things that just are just like kind of just inherently dense. And so they're the types of games that people tend to as a broad generalization of the genre, which is never fair, but, you know, just broadly tend to require a lot of time, attention and potentially study from their players um, to really get the most out of them. And one of the cool things about Disco Elysium is that I feel like it's extremely accessible for what it is. Um, You play a detective in this, um, uh, it's kind of hard to pinpoint an era that this takes place in. There's aspects of it that are futuristic, but there's also aspects of it that feel kind of like a failed uh, Soviet state where everything is just kind of grim and gray and depressing and broken down. And, you know, this is kind of post a revolution. Um, everyone is kind of, you know, sad and alcoholic. And um, so there's that, those kind of grim elements, but it never becomes overbearing. It's not, you know, uh, it's not like a, I have no mouth and I must scream type of thing. It, it, it keeps a light enough tone to kind of balance out all the darkness um, but uh, you play a detective who is just coming off of a uh, multi-day drugs and alcohol bender, um, apparently very depressed, apparently uh, on the verge of being suicidal. And so you wake up essentially having done so many drugs that you don't remember anything about yourself. You don't remember your name. You don't remember why you're there, who you are. Uh, you quickly piece together that you are a detective there to investigate a case. There is a hanging Um, and, um, uh, over a week ago and the body is still hanging up in the back of this, uh, restaurant, um, restaurant hotel that you're staying at. And it's up to you and your partner, who's uh, a lot more kind of, uh, buttoned up, um, than you are, I guess anyone would be in this case, but, uh, you know, he's, he's a little bit more kind of by the book, um, but uh that he's a really good dude um i i love uh kim he's a he's a great companion and so it's up to the two of you to solve for this murder to try to you know talk to the the people in power within town and and find out you know who did this and why and um it, it's this really great evolving story of um a really memorable and really strong cast of characters of uh, really compelling kind of societal and social uh, stratas all layered on top of each other. A lot of this is revolving around a, a union dispute that's taking place at the time. But uh, yeah, it's it's beautiful to look at in a like kind of, you know, in a kind of, you know, beauty and ugly type of way, if that makes sense. It's very painterly. Um, but you're going to be encountering some grim stuff along with the more kind of lighthearted and fun stuff. Uh, but it's just, you know, everywhere you go, there's so much to explore. There's so many people that, well, there's not that many people to talk to, but there's so many things to talk about with them. There's so many little choices that you can make along the way that have huge consequences down the line. Some of those choices are made for you, um, just like a regular 
CRPG, your character has a big kind of stats screen that you uh, you can kind of lay out your aptitudes and your uh, basically that's just setting like hard limits on five genres of skills, so to speak. And so, you know, there are some skills that are very straightforward, like, um, you know, there's some that determine how how good you are with mechanical tools or hacking or lock picking. There's some that are uh, about your, your pain tolerance, um, essentially how many HP you have. Uh, there's some about, you know, how much of a physical presence you are. So if you get into a fight or if you need to break down a doorway, then um, essentially more points in that stat would um, increase your chance of rolling a winning roll in this uh, in all this kind of simulated dice rolls that um, that make up every uh, everything that happens. There's uh, in the mental things like empathy. So you could be more empathetic as a character. You can be uh, there's one called Encyclopedia that is uh, I find very useful. It, it um, basically gosh, I should explain this as well. Uh, so as you're going through the dialogue and exploring things, you are not only having dialogue with the characters that you're encountering, but you're also having dialogue with the, well, voices in your head that represent the different aspects of your personality. So you could, you could encounter a character and notice they're acting a little weird, and then your empathy personified as a character could speak to you like any other character would and tell you this is what I think is going on with this character, you know, and maybe uh, there are times when these uh, different aspects of your personality disagree with each other. So, you know, empathy and electrochemistry, which is about um, being sensitive to uh, addiction and drugs and stuff like that could, you know, could clash. They could have different interpretations of what's happening. And the more, points you put into any of these skills the more they the more powerful they are essentially the more they can speak to you and so you get the sense that there are dozens of these lines written for every encounter that most people probably won't see unless you know because they have to write around the person who's just going to try to break the system put all of their points into one skill just to see you know, what the most obnoxious version of encyclopedia could be. Um, and that's an interesting way of balancing against specialization as well, is that you can stack one skill really high if you want to, but instead of having diminishing returns, like uh, like you would get in most RPGs where if you keep putting stats into your attack, eventually it's not going to be doing it's not going to be, you know, each point isn't going to be lifting the same amount that it had been really early on into building your character. Um, it's going to actually have negative effects uh, in the sense that if you put too many points into encyclopedia, then all of a sudden you, this nerd ass part of your brain is going to be chiming in with like literally everything. And so you start looking for ways to take points out of encyclopedia just to get it to kind of shut up for a while. So it's, yeah, it, super interesting systems all built on top of each other. There's um, there are things as intricate as uh, you don't learn your character's name for a while. It took me it took me 12 hours into the game to learn my character's name and to get the late title card, which is absurd, but I love it. Um, 
and uh, you could very early on, uh, a character asks you your name, and you can try to uh, make up a name. It's, It's not a difficult task, but it is still something, you know, following Dungeons and Dragons rules that you have to roll against success or failure. And I happened to uh, to fail that role, and he came up with the most kind of ridiculous name that he could possibly think of, this Raphael Cousteau or something like that. And and if you failed that one check at the beginning of the game, then you could just continue calling yourself that throughout the entire game. Even after your real name's been revealed to you, you can still uh, insist on being called Raphael Characters will react to you having this uh, this um, this name that you've given yourself. Uh, there is even a um, a special stat which will unlock. There are kind of inactive skills that you can internalize um, throughout the game. They're called thoughts, and they're just things that you can, if you behave in a certain way, a certain pattern of behavior, or if you encounter certain things, then you can have a thought and if you internalize that thought then that'll give you kind of like a permanent boost or detraction from certain stats so anyways there is a stat that is just kind of like this this character name that you've made up for yourself and that'll give you like a certain boost or detraction in certain stats and like you would never have that if you hadn't failed one check really early in the game and so you know all these different branches and all these different paths and all these different things that there's probably things there that no one is ever going to see and that's super cool it just feels like a game with a million doors that will never be opened which is uh really kind of magical it puts the magic back in video games in a way that shouldn't be possible but i'm really happy that it is so yeah one of my favorite games of the year you clearly clearly um it's a it's a game you feel very passionate about and mm-hmm. uh were drawn to and just to i must confess i haven't played it um i'm going to it's kind of like game written for chris page one mm-hmm. number seven <laughs> <laughs> um but just to, for the so as i know um you said earlier that you know the writing is very important well without mm-hmm. the writing this game wouldn't exist i mean it's it's built around narrative and character development mm-hmm. the plot is very important but not only is it important as the character you're portraying and indeed building because you're you're leaning towards someone more of a logical mind or someone's more more um, empathetic or a bit of both or someone who has a great deal of knowledge but um yeah, also but lacks empathy you know all that kind of kind of stuff it's it's very and it's a natural successor if my view, not even though you know the, the creators of the game have nothing to do with Planescape Torment, um, and it's very interesting to note that Planescape Torment has been recently released um, on um, current platforms. But personally, my memory of that game is when it came out all those you know, twenty years ago now. And for me, there is a way to th- get through that game without actually hitting anything, and this is a natural evolution from that because you don't hit anything in Disco. Elysium, you uh, you actually talk your way around the world. You experience the world mm-hmm. through the eyes and characteristics and emotions and engagements that the that, that the characters having, not only with other people but with themselves. Um, a more crass way of looking at it. Well, not crass, but interesting way of looking at it. Say, so it's a bit like this gear where you actually fight the going to a dungeon into which is in the weapon that you're trying to get. 
and that's 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 similar to sort of like strange sort of multi-layered experience whereas most time you wouldn't have a, a dialogue with your emotions it would simply be a dialogue choice it would be a multi-choice in like similar to well mass effect or or, or a Knights Old Republic, any one of those games. And you have, you know, a choice of being, are you doing a, you know, a bad thing or are you doing a nice, nice happy thing? This is more like, are you doing a thing? This will have consequences. And you just roll with that. And those consequences could be good or bad, but those those terms are relative in Disco Elysium, unlike other games where they're not relative, generally speaking. Am I right in saying all that? Yep. There you go. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to emphasize, you know, yeah. for anyone who has even a passing interest in this it's you know as um as niche as it sounds being a crpg from an eastern european team that deals with kind of grim and dark subject matter you know this is the type of game that sounds like it's made for the hardest core of player you know the the people who are really into their story based games and the people who have spent you know decades in this genre you know and the name itself disco elysium is is a bit pretentious you know it comes across as being this kind of ultimate hipster game but like really it's it's the most accessible crpg that i've ever played you know there's all the stat systems all of the systems are really laid out very plainly it doesn't assume that you know how anything works necessarily it just kind of lays everything all out on the table it even uh, gives you kind of a graphic depiction of um of dice rolls just so you know that this is how the system is determining you know how everything works it gives you percentage chances on every uh, choice that you can make weighed against the dice rolls that it will make uh, so Everything is right there on the table. Everything is um, presented in a very straightforward way. There's no combat, so to speak. I guess there are a few encounters you can classify as combat encounters. And to a lesser degree, I guess every conversation is kind of a stand-in for the combat you would get in other games in that you are checking your stats and how you built your character against people that you are chatting with. And you could have better or worse outcomes from a certain uh, conversation. But again, it's another game that just rewards you for going in with open hands um, for saying, you know, whether I, uh, I let, let's not try to min max this, you know, let's, uh, you know, let's try you can't. to you just can't. roll with the punches. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> I it's mean, you like, could, uh, you could yeah. quick save before yeah. every dice roll, oh, yeah. get the perfect roll and become the perfect detective. But like in this game, Failure is often just as interesting as uh, as succeeding. <laughs> um, there are a few uh, stat checks that, if failed, will reduce one of two stats. There's um, essentially your HP, your health, and um, if that reaches zero um, because your character kind of overexerted themselves, then uh, you would uh, have a heart attack and end up dying, which some players do. Uh, in the first room in the game, trying to retrieve their necktie from the uh, ceiling fan above them, if they fail that stat check and they don't have any extra points in uh, in health, then they will have a heart attack right there in the opening room of the game. Uh, so you know, not a problem. Just reload your most recent save. Try to auto save uh, or try to quick save every so often, just so you don't send yourself too far back. But 
it it rarely comes up. But there's another stat that is more about kind of your mental fortitude at the time. And that, you know, whether that's your ego or your um your sense of of self and the world around you, you know, that could be that could be hurt, that could be broken. And um if that happens, then you become depressed and it's kind of a game over at that point as well. Um or, you know, just go back to your most recent save. But it's uh there was one situation that i just like i can't get over the best game over i've ever had in a video game where um i was uh i was talking to this um this young girl in front of a uh, bookstore and she was talking about how much she likes detective literature and i was like oh i'm a detective and she's like oh cool why don't you try to do something about me and i i had a fairly high uh chance of rolling you know it was a high percentage because pretty easy i'm just trying to impress this little elementary age girl and even with the odds stacked in my favor just based on the way that the dice roll i uh i failed the dice check and my character could only come up with uh you're very small (laughs) and she was she looked at me with such a look of disappointment that it drained my volition point and my character became so depressed that he quit the police force. And I got just got this um, this game over screen that was like a newspaper headline. Police quits police or yeah, officer quits police force in midst of murder investigation. <laughs> and I'm just like, man, wow. that's really that's- swung for the fences and really missed on that one. <laughs> Well, yeah, Disco Elysium is out on PC at the moment, but I think it's out on the consoles in the future. I understand. Yep. Well, we could spend the rest of this session talking about the game, but we're not going to. <laughs> no, let's go ahead and move on. We spent too long on that one already. I'm afraid let's go so, on to, he says. Uh, to Double Cross. <laughs> Double Cross is a game I encountered at the uh, Seattle Indie Expo in, not this year, the year before. What a game for such a small developer, uh, 13am games. Um, beautiful game. What is it though? It's a 2D scrolling platform action adventure game where you play this dimensional hopping person who's able to go from to different earths and, uh, you, uh, are part of this uh, organization that keeps order, makes sure that the earths, although there is a interaction between them, that interaction is kept to an absolute minimum for fear of actually causing ruptures and the collapse of space-time continuum. Uh, unfortunately, there are other people, ne'er-do-wells, who want to disrupt said space-time continuum because they probably need a hug. I don't know. And <laughs> um, they, you then go about the extraordinary adventure. What this, this whole conceit, this whole other Earth conceit thing does, it affords the developer to make strange new worlds and that bear no relation to each other, which also means you have levels that bear absolutely no relation to each other whatsoever but it's great because that's you know and it does mean that certain even physics the rules of physics and stuff change because these are different you know realities different dimensions different uh, universes as i say rather than dimensions and um um which affords a bit of you know latitude uh with the gameplay the ultimate the, the biggest hook and i don't mean that as a pun is a swing mechanic where you can actually fire off a projectile that's got a tracer sort of laser beam sort of thing and then that locks on to certain objects that are highlighted in in the in the environment and then you can swing across and actually then you can create a chain 
uh, a bit like Spider-Man in that regards. And uh, this is rewarded where you can move very, very fast across the screen. Uh, but you can actually find yourself landing into something quite horrid as a result. But uh, there's a bit of collectathon as well. You can pick up certain objects. It gives you certain stat boosts and that kind of thing. Really, really well put together. Very funny storyline. You encounter a mirror version of yourself, which is quite amusing. They don't have a goatee beard, though, which is a little bit disappointed about. The fluidity of movement, the action, the level of difficulty can spike quite quickly on, on, the, on the third world I've found that you encounter. It get, does get a bit hairy, but by that time you should have figured out how things are moving. And it basically throws you lots of curveballs deliberately um, to actually keep the game interesting because it could quite easily get quite sort of rote. But it doesn't. They do a fantastic job of keeping you interested and keeping you picking up things and there's, there's lots of characters to interact with and it's just um, one of the earlier ones you encounter this big tentacle monster and you just think, oh, it's horrible, it's going to eat everything. Nicest character ever. <laughs> he just comes across <laughs> as this big monster and he's not, he's just really nice, he's just very confused. He did try to eat someone because he thought there was food because where he's from, that's what, you know, food looks like that was his excuse and it's perfectly reasonable and then in, in, in the end it, it, you, you get back get him back to for, for reasons it, stuff happens but um yeah wonderfully well produced game i played it on the pc but it's also available on the switch the switch is, works version works very very well um highly recommended so yeah double cross big thumbs up from me what about you ryan are you intrigued by this one I've uh, I played this briefly, an early build of this when I was still at Nintendo. It's by the developers of Renbow, if that 13 a.m. game sounds familiar. Mm. Uh, Renbow is also a very fun kind of platformery type of game yeah. uh, with a very unique twist to it. Yeah, I, I like to see this type of, of smaller team experiment with interesting ideas. Um, I like a good grappling hook. Uh, I enjoy... A bit of flint hook from time to time and stuff like that and yeah. so you know it's it's fun just kind of zipping around um a little bit of uh getting used to it first uh the um jumping and hitting the, the grappling hook at the right angle um it's kind of a ori in the blind forest in that kind of way as well but um yeah interesting game has a nice art style with some really well-designed characters uh i'm uh i'm interested in going back to it We've, I've had the developers on the on the podcast. They return guests, actually. The developers were, mm. but the person there was was new. Um, but uh, yeah, big thumbs up from me, as you can hear in my voice. Right, another one that I've been really curious about, also on Nintendo Switch and uh, PC platforms, is uh, Eagle Island. Yeah, um, some way similar to Double Cross in that you're running around and jumping. Kind of stops there <laughs> at that point. Um, this is a very 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 pretty beautifully animated video game and i do mean the words video and game this is a pure game this is a game that's made to say well you like playing games don't you well here's a game that you can manipulate and sort of modify and alter to your heart's content to make it the most entertaining experience that you want i'm going to come back to what i mean by all that in a moment but let's of more in description. So Eagle Island is a 2D platform action adventure game and you play a chap who has two friends, two companions, and they're not people, they're owls, which is brilliant. Best kind of companions are owls. And they're great. And they're also, you know, immortal, it looks like, because these, uh, well, when you land on, you, you, you're on a boat with your two friends and there's a massive storm 
and you get washed ashore on this mysterious island, the Eagle Island, no less. And uh, as you're just waking up from the shipwreck, the, you, you know, your ship's destroyed, and you and you're just waking up on the, on the beach of this uh, this island. One of the uh, a big um, a big um, eagle, massive thing, comes swooping down and grabs one of your friends. It's horrifying. No blood, but lots of feather comes out. You know? Lots of feathers, and um, you then travel with your lone companion now to a village. And it's, uh, you're told that this big, the eagle is terrorizing the inhabitants of the island and stealing birds for reasons and uh, some sort of power thing trip it's on. And it needs birds to actually do this. And uh, you are given a falconer's glove. And this glove is then used as a mechanic or a MacGuffin, is that a word? Uh, a thing that you command your owl friend. And you you command your Alfred by actually shooting or throwing the said eagle, sorry, owl, at um, various things, objects, creatures. And when it hits them at a certain velocity, it destroys them. <laughs> and uh, by the way, the owl is not harmed in any way during this exchange. It seems to be immortal. Like I said, it cannot be harmed in any way. However, you can, which makes perfect sense. This game is really about careful coordination, platforming, Fluid animation, understanding where you're supposed to be, working out puzzles, overcoming um, seemingly insurmountable odds with very little powers when you finally realise that. And it's just the the game introduces more and more mechanics the longer you play. And really early, you have a series of feathers and these different feathers that you pick up from various other birds that are captured by the eagle. They give you certain, they give the power, the, uh, the, your owl certain additional powers. One of the earliest ones you get is a lightning, uh, power where it allows it to chain react with, it kills one thing, then it kills another thing, it kills another thing, it causes a whole sort of massive destruction on the screen. It's fantastic. It's the animation is very very beautiful. The frames is just astonishing. The level of my frames of animation they've got. There's always something moving on the screen. Always it's um, and it's all pixel art, but it's not you know the 16 bit pixel art. It's just something only modern computers could possibly pull off. Similar to Chasm in that in that regard. And um, yeah, really really good game. And the granularity of it is it, it there's you know there's this core which is the core difficulty, but you can drop that down to light or casual, or we can go to hardcore, which makes it even more difficult. And it, the, the difficulty settings are very granular, and it also gives you other options as well to make to, to, to basically create an experience that unique to you that you prefer. And, um, yeah, I haven't got a lot of negative things to say about Eagle Island. Um, Wonderful game. It really rewards perseverance, but it's not unfair. Um, generally, when you make mistakes, it's your your um, fault, which is the best kind of uh, game for that kind of thing. So, basically, mechanic, I should say, or aspect of an action adventure like this. Yeah, Eagle Island. Um, amazingly, they gave it away free with Twitch a month or so back. Don't know why. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But, I might um, have it then. I should yeah, check it out. Yeah. Because uh, I do that every month. I always dump on my Twitch account and go, oh, look, there you go. There's a whole raft of new games for me to play. Let's move on to Fimble. Fimble. Fimble is a purist version of Viking action-adventure games. There's lots and lots and lots of Viking games there. I know. There's loads. Something about the Viking mythology and the, the culture of that particular group of people that... Uh, 
existed a thousand years ago still draws people. But this one, this one, this one's slightly different in good ways. There's there's mythology attached to it. There's definitely creatures and trolls, excuse me, and beasts and strange sort of beasts and that kind of thing. But the thing that sets it apart for me uh, above other Viking games, sort of third-person action adventure games, which is what Fimble is, by the way, and I played it on the PlayStation 4, is the combat. The combat's really very, I'm going to use that word, I'm hesitant to use it, but it's the most appropriate word to use. It is tactile. Um, how can I describe it? Have you ever wondered why player characters, when they kill someone, they never pick up the weapons of the other person they've just chopped to pieces? Hmm. Yeah, well, this is what you do in Fimble, because your weapons, they break and sometimes, and you know, and if you use a shield, your shield is not, you know, it will be battered and broken and smashed to pieces, and you have to get another one. Uh, if you if you got a javelin weapon, well, it's only the only javelin weapon you got is the one in your hand. So if you pick it up and throw it, you got to go up and pick it up and get it again. <laughs> that is just, it's that like kind of oh, well, I've just thrown it at it. Yeah, you just thrown this big sort of javelin at this troll. Okay, yeah, they go and get it. What? It's stuck in inside. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, are we going to get that? You're not. You have to get another one, aren't you? So, I mean, it's just that feeling of this sort of like laden, sort of heavy combat of you're going to have to really, when you engage in a combat, the sense of momentum, the use of the weapons, and as you ever use an axe or a sword, the sense of like weight, momentum, and speed. That's the only way you can actually cause damage to people or to things you're trying to attack. Really inventive, very. Every engagement is actually quite terrifying. Um, you do have ability because you're a bit of a hero, so you can actually attack things with greater gusto. You can have certain abilities, and you can heal yourself as well because you're, you know, heroic, and you actually just soldier on and that kind of thing. That's all a bit silly, but ultimately it does reward you trying to be cautious. Don't just wade in to a combat thing. You're going to make it out alive when 10 people are just going to surround. It's not going to work. You have to be careful. And so every engagement has to be measured very closely. And that, along with a really interesting storyline where, quite frankly, not everyone's good and not everyone's bad, that sort of grey storyline is uh, adds to a really extraordinary experience. And I really enjoyed my time with Thimble. And um, I'm happy that it exists as a thing. Very cool. And then those who are interested in it, that is spelled F-I-M-B-U-L. So yeah. <laughs> interesting. Uh, you can find that on a PS4, Xbox One, PC, and Nintendo Switch. All of the things, yes. Let's move on to something that I, I purchased pretty early on, but I've only recently gotten around to playing it. Uh, this will be uh, somewhat familiar to Playwright listeners. Actually, I'm wondering if these episodes have even gone out yet, but uh, there were two back-to-back episodes in which, uh, in in the first show, I uh, made a pitch about a game about um, kind of decoding a language and plugging in words that you know, and eventually kind of working towards um, kind of full linguistic mastery of this uh, this made-up language. Partway into the pitch, I was like, "Well, gosh, I have." Heaven's Vault installed on my computer. I hope this is not the exact same thing. And then uh, I played it in between that and the next episode. And it turns out, yes, it is pretty much exactly what I was pitching. So, um, yeah, bit of a, well, 
hoping it's not uh, not theft of inspiration, but hoping it's more of a great minds think alike type of thing. But this is coming from Inkle Limited, which is the studio that brought you 80 Days. If you liked 80 Days, this uh, game is a uh, really interesting and very different follow-up to it. Um, it has a uh, super creative um, premise where you're playing a uh, basically a like a linguistic anthropologist uh, that goes to different planets in this kind of sci-fi, but kind of really grounded sci-fi universe, and um, you're you're there to go and try to find this um, this character who's gone missing. Um, but you are more personally interested in encountering ruins of ancient civilizations and artifacts and stuff that have this ancient language um, attached to them. And over time, you can, uh, you can start to recognize patterns of these markings and start to really suss out what this language is. And you do that by guessing essentially what each word is it it kindly um, breaks up each word separately and then it gives you a chance to uh, gives you three or four choices as to what you think it might be and usually there are some times when it's just completely you find a, a scroll on the ground and you open it up and there's nothing that you recognize and so you're just like literally guessing out of your ass but there are times when you can use context clues you know, if something is on a um, on a water fountain, then you can be reasonably certain that one of the words is water. And you can use that instance where you're reasonably sure that something is the right word to try to fill it in elsewhere and see if that gives you any clues as to what the other words in these kind of less certain instances of um, of this word appearing actually are and so it's a really interesting kind of like intermixing of uh it feels like linguistic picross in a way where you're kind of using the clues that you can solve to help you with the ones that you can't and then eventually you know every after you've encountered a word a certain number of times um your character will kind of lock it in and say yes this is correct you know it's kind of like a, a return of the Oberdin in that way and um i'm uh i'm i'm very interested in this it's a though the linguistic puzzle game is the heart of the game essentially uh there's a lot around it um it's a 3d exploration game uh with 2d character sprites done in a really interesting way that i've never really even seen before um it's like they they have hand drawn sprites from every angle and as you rotate the camera in this 3D world, it just kind of like snaps between different drawings of every character, which is uh, it, it's very unique in its style. I, I don't know if I prefer it to just 3D characters or just 2D characters in a 2D space, but it's it's interesting. At least it's very unique. It's very memorable. It's very, um, you know, it is its own identity in a way. Um, but I mean, on the subject of the art style, if I have to layer any criticism, I'm not sure it really gains a lot by being in 3d. And I think it comes off as a game that the people who made it aren't that comfortable working in 3d. That sounds like a really awful thing to say. I don't mean it to come off as so, um, so belittling like that. I know that, you know, this is, this is hard work, but there's uh, it's just like a lot of instances where the camera will not be cooperative. And even during pre-scripted cutscenes, there are 
weird shots that only last for like a second or two. And it's like, these are the bits that are supposed to be like directed where camera control is taken away from us. Like why are there still things that feel so uh, kind of sloppy in that regard? Really, it's just kind of the 3D aspects of it that I don't super gel with, but the game itself is very interesting. A lot of story, a lot of exploration that kind of surround this core of linguistic puzzle solving, which I can kind of go either way on. I'm really into the linguistic side of it. I appreciate that there is a frame story, but it feels like there's uh at least at the point in the story that I am probably about halfway through, it feels like there's not enough meat and too much additional stuff around it at this point. Like, I just want to get in there and solve more of those puzzles, but I enjoy the story, but it just kind of, it feels like it's taking me away from the things that I really want to do. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit mixed, but I love the idea. I love the ambition and I'm definitely going to stick with it. Uh, Chris, what is your take on this one? So Inkle, I've got a bit of a relationship with because I, it's one of the earliest developers I ever had on the Sausage Factory. In fact, they appeared on episode six. And considering that show's been going now, we're now, yeah, 258 come out. <laughs> so yeah, they're kind of uh, friends of mine. I've got to say, well, there they are. They, they would, uh, and, um, they um have made they made the sorcery games. That's the things I knew. They made games mm. and sorcery from the Steve Jackson uh, Choose Your Own Adventure books, which were incredible. And then they went on to do Eighty Days, which they're more known for. And they've made this Inkle engine as well for people making narrative and language in their games. It's fantastic. Heaven's Vault isn't about the puzzle solving. I'm afraid to say, sir. It's certainly <laughs> very key component of the game. It's really about the main protagonist and how disconnected they are from the rest of humanity. That's what the real narrative of the story is really about. So I think you're thinking of Death Stranding, actually. We, we got to re-enter this. You'd think, <laughs> wouldn't you? Um, a game I haven't played. I'm not sure I will. Don't know. Because um, it seems a bit strange. Um, if you ever have Kojima on the Sausage Factory, then you'll brush up beforehand. <laughs> I'm sure. Although I'll probably interview him for Penguin Adventure more than that. Anyway, that was his first game, by the way. Um, on the MSX all those years ago. So yeah, Heaven's Vault, I really, really, really enjoy because I like characters. I like people drawn to them uh, for whatever, for good or ill. The, that for me, the, her relationship with the the assistant droid is fascinating. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, what it's quite an interesting. You think you think the quest is really about her finding the the the, the Origins of the civilization has been discovered and what happened to them and how they died. But really, it um, sounds a bit pretentious, but it's actually a quest for herself and finding herself. And that's what it's really about. And that can jar somewhat. Like, wait, I don't understand. Why is this all about her? If you don't get that, then you, that's um, that's what really it's, – it's a sort of like a, a dual sort of like plot lines here. There's one minute – is the person itself and how it's affecting her and what she's finding out about herself as well as what she's finding out about this civilization or not is the case maybe because a lot of her prejudices and her her, her views on the in the universe and the world are feeding into her um, understanding or, or appreciation for this civilization that's been discovered where she shouldn't do that that's actually making things worse and when she does that when you try to project 
her emotions where if you, 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 you say to yourself in these, these puzzles and you say, well, what would she think? Don't do that. Because nine times out of ten, she'll actually get it wrong. It's, it's actually you use the facts presented to you. And you actually hinted at that, saying that if it's near a fountain, then probably one of those words is fountain. That's the way you should go. Uh, because if you try to use other ancillary aspects and aspect and the things that she's trying to interpret outside the rules of logic, then it starts to fall over. And that's really clever. It's really clever. And uh, credit to the writers, who are brilliant. Uh, Inkle are well-known throughout the video game industry for being exceptionally good narr- narrative writers. And I'm surprised they're not involved in some way in... Uh, Disco Elysium, quite frankly, but um, they may well be. They may have been consultants or something. I don't know. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, if you haven't played this, uh, do yourself a favour. If you get, if you do have a PS4 and or a PC, get on it because it is an incredible experience. This feels like the kind of game that would work really well on an iPad or a, a touchscreen device as well. But uh, maybe at some point in the future, maybe sound design is fairly minimal. There's some voice acting, some music. Mm. Uh, most of the game, though, the game is nearly silent. Um, I feel like it could do with a little bit more kind of ambient music or sound effects, but uh, it's just kind of a small thing. I, uh, I I really like the game. I really want to spend more time with it. Um, everything feels like it has a little bit of rough edges, like, you know, controls, presentation, menu, interface. But I feel like that is just them pushing kind of against the boundaries of ambition, which is uh, what I like to see with indie games anyways. And so there's there's I think the most fascinating thing about this is just the amount of auxiliary detail that you can glean from stuff within the game. There's a incredibly rich timeline uh, that you can explore at any time. It kind of defaults to showing your adventure and it kind of bookmarks some of the most important events that have happened. So you can kind of get a refresher on your story and, and, you know, follow, you know, two days ago, this happened two days ago, that happened. And four months ago, I received a message from, and so it, it helps contextualize the journey, but you can keep zooming out and it can go, way far back to before your character was even born. So, you know, 200 years ago, there was this revolution and 3000 years ago, there was the discovery of this and that. And, you know, 8,000 years ago, this ancient civilization. And there's just so much like detail and so much lore and stuff that is just readily available to you. You know, you are playing a university graduate. And so presumably your character would have access to this level of kind of granular information about the world. But it's just so, so cool to see. Um, I think the menus could stand to be a little bit friendlier to navigate, but it's, it's all laid out in a way that's very, um, very approachable and very, uh, very interesting. Um, I, I just love when teams just really are obviously in love with the world that they've created and are just excited to share more of it. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, They are deeply enamored with what they've made and fiercely proud of it, and they're right to be too. Absolutely. Anyways, that was Heaven's Vault. Let's move from heaven to hell with Hell is Other Demons. Chris, this is one of yours. Yeah, nice, nice segue. Was it a segue? I've, I've, <laughs> done, I've described it, it's not one anymore, is it? Damn it. Hell is Other Demons is a brilliant 2D platform action roguelike game which is i know a lot of people sort of want to say oh roguelike oh please really bear with us don't turn off now it's great it's um you are a little demon held hence the phrase other demons because you're playing one so rather than hell is other people uh to play on that kind of phrase and uh, it's made by color monster games again we've had i've had them on the show 
because I, I played this at uh, PAX East uh, last year and uh, no one was attending the booth. You know, you get that sometimes at West, don't you? It's just like, it's just sitting there. No one's touching it. No one's looking at it. You go, why? And you go over and you're, it's just, it's difficult initially, but then when you get your head into it, it's just amazing. So what's the premise of this? Why is it so good? What, what's so, what's so fascinating about Hell is Other Demons? Well, you're familiar with Downwell. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there's a graphic representation of Downwell. It's like 2D, but it's low color. So it's like one or two colors tops. This has got three or four colors, mainly reds, whites, and purples. But the animation and fluidity and that kind of thing, and it uh, makes it so it's an absolute joy to behold, even though there's a low color count. And uh, there's no flickering, of course. It's just very fluid and very bright and colorful with the limited palette that it has. So it makes a lot, a lot of sense. So one of the things that struck me about this is that the way you can run around and jump around is that you can use enemies as platforms as well. So you can leap off a, a platform, and before you hurtle yourself into a, a pit full of spikes, you just land on an enemy and then just leap off them instead. And that, that, it's just so simple. And I know it's been done in other games, but this just revels in that and then it builds on that and you have different weapons as well and some of these you know, there's some of these weapons have a special shot that's only triggered when you actually kill a certain amount of demons and you've gathered a certain amount of energy from them or demon energy from them when you do that you can then let rip this extraordinary weapon but of course just like any other extraordinary weapon like i call it the bfg effect the bfg effect is when you get that amazing weapon in doom but never fire it because you just don't know when the optimum time will be. So I ended up going through the game, going, oh, I might as well fire it. And you know, you kill up one little fire demon or something. Oh, wait, you've wasted it. That can happen in this game, but you just got to time it right. And uh, it all depends on what kind of weapon you have. You unlock weapons. Even after you die, you then carry over some currency. You can use that to actually increase your ability to jump, to fire, rapid fire, get reflective shots, and all sorts of things. It's beautifully laid out. Rewards the player for, for again, playing over and over, just like any roguelike would do. Creates a level of difficulty that suits you based on your own experience, and your own it caters for your own play style. And it's just an absolute blast really is it just such a wonderful experience it just you walk away smiling even after being pummeled to death it's not frustrating it's just you will be laughing as well because some of the stuff that comes out with it then you just the animations and things you can do with your character you can put spikes on the bottom of your 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 player your little character and then when he jumps off things he does massive damage to them it's great um, very silly game, wonderfully put together, really well done. Music is also really good as well, really good. And, uh, yeah, that's on the Switch, the Mac, and PC. Great. Yeah. Cool game. Hell is Other Demons. Yeah. We're going to be uh, going into a couple of bicycle games now. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, why don't you take us into the first one, Nights and Bikes. Nights and Bikes. Nights and Bikes. This game is about love. It's about joy. It's about childhood. It's about adventures when you were a child especially if you were a child in the 1980s. So made by Foam Sword, which again had as guests on the podcast. It's a, there's a trend here. I'm going to stop <laughs> saying it now. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's a third-person action-adventure game again, but this time with two characters rather than one. You can play it cooperatively. Indeed, the game encourages you to play it cooperatively. And the two uh, pre-adolescent um, girls that you play, and they, they have little bicycles, might BMXs, no doubt. 
they've got little flags on that. They're just and the animation uh, is this strange sort of 2D art, very stylized, beautifully put together. And the whole story is about the friendship that's built between these two characters and the adventures they go on on this island. And it's set and developed and written in such a way that mystical things don't really happen because they're actually in the kids' heads. They're like imagining those things happening, and but they don't actually happen. It's lovely. Um, and there's some real-world things happen, sad real-world things happen, that they just shrug off and they cope in a different way. The way you just witness experience their coping mechanism and what they're dealing with and how they're dealing with it. And the way they deal with it is, oh, that's boring. It's not far from boring, you know. It's very, but they just—that's how they cope with it. And it's a wonderful story of friendship and its exploration and discovery, and uh, the, the, the the controls and the—it's very straightforward, very easy. The tutorial is wonderfully put together. It gently eases you. It doesn't throw all the information at you at one go. When there's a new mechanic, a new character mechanic, or a new way to control the character it introduces it very quickly and makes you sure you understand what you can and can't do in that mechanic uh, one of the most heartwarming ones is the when you heal in order to heal you call over a friend so you call one of the over call one of the characters over and one of the characters is and if it's one of the players do it they've got to move over close to you and then you do a high five and then you use a plaster or a band-aid i believe if you're American, uh, and then you get mm-hmm. you, you know you healed up. It's lovely. It's just I I yeah yeah tear jerking stuff. I'm afraid. Be <laughs> have have a packet of Kleenex nearby because uh, stuff happens. And uh, but one of the most inventive, charming, entertaining games I've played in a long time. I'm proud to say I've backed it on Kickstarter. It's one of those games that did actually deliver um, on. And uh, not so much on time because they did. It, I know why it took so long because they had to. This had to be carefully nurtured into being. They couldn't just craft it. They or push it out. Couldn't be done. It had to be because every everything matters. And this, I just can't. It's just extraordinary. No enough people are talking about it either. That's what bothers me most of all. It um, seems to have got out there and um, and looking at the date when it was released is like yeah, late August. I don't know. There wasn't a much up against it, I don't think. There might be some trying to think what would be up against that or well, people were distracted, but it's um, it's a wonderful thing. And, yeah, more people should experience it. So it's out on Mac, Linux, PC, and PS4. I played it on the PlayStation 4 and because uh, I, I just wanted it on the big screen because the artwork deserves that kind of treatment. It's just so – it's not it's not spectacular. It's not. It's more than that. It's it's just um, done from the heart. It really matters. Mm. Every, every animation, every interaction with the characters, you just really feel them. You can really relate to them very quickly because you were. I was once a kid. Uh, I was a teenager in the the eighties because I'm that old. Uh, but for me, that that for me, I was that age when I was in the seventies, and that for me was as a special time, really magical time, and you just. You just go back to that very quickly because you can very much, everyone can relate to that. And, uh, yeah, very, very, you know, best related to is Swallows and Amazons, that kind of stuff. It's wonderful stuff. It's the, yeah, big thumbs up. Awesome. This is definitely one that I, I want to check out. It's it's on my list. Uh, I always, you know, Double Fine always does such a great publishing work for indies that they partner with well, did. i'm hoping that they get to continue well yeah i'm hoping that they get to continue having some sort of a 
impact in the indie world now that they are um, a first party Microsoft studio, but we'll, we'll see how that all shapes out. I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure how that's going to go yet. <laughs> no, but anyways, see. that is Knights and bikes Knights spelled with a K. If you are interested, uh, our next, our next bike game in our two wheel, two game duology here is, um, lonely mountains downhill. This is one that both of us have played but one that uh, you in particular have been championing for a while. So why don't you give us an explanation as to what this one is? Okay. This is a mountain bike downhill simulator. Where are you going? No, don't do that. No, (laughs) come on. It's it's more than that. Um, Ultimately, that's all it is. But it's the presentation, Ryan. It's the presentation. Mm. That's what sets it apart, honestly. Um, It's not just the execution, of course, but the presentation. It's third person, but the camera... Could have been an absolute disaster, actually, because mm. there are times when your your character, your bicycle's riding towards the screen, so therefore you don't know where you're going. But that's deliberate, you know. It's just it doesn't do it often, but it does it just so few few sort of fleeting seconds to notice that, or not fleeting microseconds uh, that uh, causes a bit causes go awry. But ultimately, it's like a isometric view, kind of fluid camera which you have no control over at all and it just sort of does its own thing it has some um, triggers that allow it to do certain things zooms in and out depending on what you're doing and where you're going how fast you're going but you are following a trail to a point you're actually just trying to get to the bottom of a mountain really by fair means or foul because i say foul because there is an obvious path and you can follow that that's fine but there's also other paths you can take and these other paths are more treacherous, more exciting, more challenging. But when you do that, you can actually cut two, maybe 30, maybe 40 seconds off your time, which is what ultimately you're trying to do. You're trying to get down these trials as quickly as possible. And the controls, there's two forms of controls, and there's um, there's only one I like. The one is where you actually control the handlebars themselves rather than, I think the other one is direct control, which I couldn't get on with at all. It's essentially tank controls versus what uh, what Resident Evil and Grim Fandango now dub modern controls, which is all kind of camera relative. What what strikes me is the the simulation of gravity is and the, how the bicycle bite, bites into the gravel or the road surface, or whatever it's riding on, is is vital, and it really mm. does get mm-hmm. a sense of oh, I'm really okay. I'm going too far. Now. I'm going too fast. Too far. Oh, damn it! And they need to. Talk. It, it's always your fault when you fail. Uh, again, it's one of those things, but um, does reward on multiple levels uh, skill. It, it not only rewards you for you know getting high, you know, small faster times, but also you get unlocks and you see more mountains and saw more trails and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It's a yeah, a wonderful thing. Brian, what do you think? I I really like this game. It's it's difficult, but in a very kind of like meditative and really engrossing kind of way. It reminds me more of like uh, the Ubisoft trials games than anything else where even though you are crashing and failing multiple times, trying to pull off a, a good jump or trying to pull off a great shortcut, there's just still kind of an inherent pull to uh, not get frustrated, you know, to, to view everything as being um, achievable. And uh, they do that by really generously checkpointing you uh, along the way. I mean, the checkpoints are, there are maybe five down a rather, well, 
I guess there are there are more than that. There's um, but it feels like there can be long stretches of road in between the checkpoints, but they're always like right where you need them to be. So where if you if you crash, you you don't go too far back, but you still have to you know do a certain amount of the trail correctly. You're not gonna just kind of brute force your way through it. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's just a great distillation of risk versus reward in the most like in the most accessible and just really easy to grapple with and understand way possible i like that as you unlock a new trail basically the only objective is just get to the bottom and you can take as much time as you want you can crash as many times as you want you can explore all the little shortcuts and stuff along the way and the entire time you're doing this it's all underscored by um just nature noises it's just very relaxing it's very nice the entire world is painted in this beautiful low poly but very well rendered and animated uh way and so it feels natural while still looking very video gamey and and just this really beautiful combination of ways the first time through there's really no objectives that you're chasing other than just get to the bottom in whatever way you want and then as you progress, uh, at, you know, you unlock more challenges that you can choose to either take by themselves or pair with other challenges and see if you can complete multiple of them at once. And uh, you don't it's not an all or nothing. If you complete one and have multiple selected, then uh, that one is still checked off. You don't have to go back and, and redo it. It's fine. Um, but uh, those challenges will be in direct opposition to one another you'll have uh, usually um, that the next level of challenges is get to the bottom in a certain amount of time uh, or under a certain amount of time and uh, get to the bottom crashing as few times as possible. And so, you know, on one cent er, in one hand, you are incentivized to be risky and to jump off of the cliffs and see if you can survive the fall to just try to cut uh, a corner that would have taken you three additional seconds, you know, because every second counts as you're making your way down the mountain. But then on the other hand, you're trying to not crash any more than you have to. And even though the number looks generous at first, those crashes do start to pile up after a while. And so you're kind of balancing those two things against each other. But it's great. If if you don't like the pressure, just do one of them, you know, just try to get down quickly and crash as many times as you want and reload the checkpoints and get down to the bottom and and uh, and check that off your list or, you know, just take a really safe and slow route if you want. It's it's a great way of allowing players to engage with the difficulty at whatever level they want without it coming across like a difficulty selection slider, you know, just the way it feels. Of course, I love turning the bike to skid and watching the little uh, voxel dust being kicked up by the tire and the sound that it makes as it scrapes across the gravel. And I love just belting it through a forest and just weaving between trees that I don't even like fully consciously see yet. There's a, there's a lot going on. There's some times where the camera is behind a tree, which for a locked camera, it feels like uh, maybe that shouldn't happen, but usually they do a good job of making sure that there's nothing that's going to trip you up in that exact moment because they know where the camera is going to be. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it can be difficult to get a sense of depth 
uh, which is is pretty necessary. I always find myself crashing into the uh, the handrails of bridges whenever I'm trying to crash uh, whenever I'm trying to cross bridges for whatever reason. Um, but other than just you know those those little couple of uh, of things there, I'm I'm a huge fan of this game. I very rarely have anybody uh, other than my partner who I live with um, over to our apartment. Uh, but I, I do once a year have uh, a lot of people over to watch the Star Wars Holiday Special on November seventeenth, and this year, you know, the this was the one game that we decided to turn on while people were arriving, and we just did a nice little, you know, pass the pad and play a a few checkpoints of Lonely Mountains Downhill, just because it's like a great game that anyone of any skill level can play. There's allowances for people who want to go fast and dangerous and there's allowances for people who want to take it slow and just enjoy a nice little ride through nature it's a very friendly game that uh that even though it is demanding it's not punishing and uh it's it's one that was a no-brainer when it came to I've got people over. What are we going to put on? It's going to be Lonely Mountains. <laughs> I just want to say two words as well that we can't ignore before we move on to the next game. Um, soft focus. Yes. Um, we can't ignore that. The, the, the use of soft focus in this game is really very subtle, but wonderfully put in and does aid with the sense of depth. Because when the things in the background that you're coming to or the things you've left behind drop into soft focus, and it's, and it's, it's wonderful how they do that. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a nice game, Lonely Mountains Downhill, that is uh, on PC, Mac, Xbox One, PS4, and is coming to Nintendo Switch at an unspecified future date, uh, or you can get it on Game Pass where it debuted. Yeah, I'm just a, a bit of advert for Ultimate Game Pass, which I do have because I have a gaming mm. PC as well, as you know, Ryan. Um, <laughs> so I actually played this both on both platforms. And it saved. It saves carryover. It's really nice. Yeah. So you could just sit, I sit on the PC and then I walked over to my Xbox and it's still there. <laughs> so good. So good. All right. Next game. I like this unified future. It's great. It's great, isn't it? It's kind of, <laughs> kind of scary. Please don't talk about the future. I'm kind of scared of the future right now. Anyway. <laughs> just that aspect of the future. We'll, yeah, we'll just that the aspect of the future. There. There's other aspects. <laughs> so I'm now really scared of. So, um, next game. Right. Please tell Anyways. us. Anyways. Yeah. This next one, another one that both of us played. This is My Friend Pedro. This is a Devolver Digital published game by Dead Toast Entertainment, and it is a very Devolver game. Um, it is a side-scrolling, uh, kind of platformer-y uh, shooting game um, where you play a character who... Uh, it, well, they just kind of describe it as a ballet of bullets, which I think is appropriate. Um, it reminds me a lot of a 2D version of uh, John Woo's Stranglehold, if any of you remember that early Xbox 360 title, where there's a lot of like, there's a lot of stylish things that you can do and it rewards you for doing them. Um, there's a lot of uh, accommodations to making things look and feel amazing. <laughs> um, there's you know, acrobatic jumps into the air as you're filing akimbo two guns in different directions at different characters. You can kick a, uh, kick a frying pan into the air and fire a gun at it. And it bounces the bullets into the enemies that surround it. You know, just, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of allowances that it makes uh, for just making you look as cool as possible at any time. 
but it is still pretty demanding. You know, it's a it's a one of those kind of like puzzly type of shooter games where you're trying to figure out the best way through this uh, th- these corridors that are all infested with enemies. It's confident. It's stylish. It's fun to play. It's uh, there's always something like blowing up and always something happening. And um, it just um, I, I just love to see the amount of care that uh, went into the very kind of dancerly animation. We talked about uh, Felix the Reaper in an earlier uh, session, and this is kind of a similar deal where, you know, obviously the love for dance and the love for choreography um, shines through in a game that you might not expect it from. And it just gives it such a unique and uh, just really, just a really beautiful in the sense of all the uh, in the in spite almost of all of the chaos that's that's happening all the violence that's taking place a really beautiful uh game that just you know plays like a like a john woo movie it's great it reminds me of two things the the two things that you haven't mentioned the first thing it reminds me is max payne earlier max payne mm. um the slow you can slow the camera down when you do certain jumps and you know, there's, there's there's an aspect of that. Um, there's also John Wick. We can't ignore that. Mm-hmm. Is uh, the bullet sort of like flying and you somehow still manage to survive and you are murderizing your way through the levels relentlessly. Uh, and that's fine. And more than fine. It's just when you pick up other weapons and you just start spraying bullets everywhere. Uh, it's just, it the, the jumping mechanic can be a bit off. But I think it's deliberately off because it's a bit odd. Mainly, I mean, the outset we should sort of describe as my friend Pedro. Pedro is a sentient banana. We don't know why. He's not at the beginning, but it is a sentient talking banana. This is a game with a weird sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. It was well known that in order to get a review copy of this game, you had to send a banana with the request on it to... <laughs> <laughs> to the developers before they gave you a review code. I must confess that this is a game that I was really impressed by when I saw it at a show. I can't remember which one, Ryan, just to say I saw it somewhere. was Oddly enough, it was actually back-to-back. It had one side, it had this. Another side, it had Greece. <laughs> hmm. Two very contrasting experiences. And, uh, yes, this one, I do remember having the first boss fight and blowing up the... The uh, ice cream van, or is it the butcher's van? I can't remember. But um, yeah, it's the butcher's van, isn't it? And uh, yeah, and doing somersaults in a, on a motorcycle. I, I, I was sold. A wonderful piece of experience that I was so impressed by. I actually bought a copy, which I know is weird, but yeah, I actually bought myself a copy. And uh, apparently it's now free on some service. Can't remember which one, but uh, <laughs> I think it might be on Game Pass now. I don't know. I can't remember. It is on Game Pass, yeah. There you go. And there you uh, go. Devolver usually finds their way into Humble Bundles and Twitch Prime giveaways. And so, you know, you, you'll get this one for free at some point. Eventually. But I just, so when it came out, I, I really, it wasn't in any service. It was just released on Steam. Like, there you go. Like, I really want to play this game. So I, I did. Uh, and it's what you do when you, you should buy games and stuff. It's just, shouldn't wait around for them to suddenly appear on, on a free thing. Cause that's wrong. Uh, if you want to, you buy it, you, you do. Good game. Uh, really, really entertaining. Not a great game because there's aspects of it mm-hmm. that don't quite work. But it's still, yeah, it's still, it's, it's certainly a highlight for this year, but not 
it's not um, it's not up there with the best of them. Yeah, I'd say it's a game that benefits from being played in kind of shorter sessions rather yes. than something you're going to blitz through all at once. Uh, just kind of, you know, take it, have a have a fun hour or so, yeah. and then put it down for a while, come back to it later. Yeah, it, it dilutes very quickly, unfortunately. It, the, the experience is... It's not like some other games we've, exp- we've talked about this this uh, this show. Yeah, but it, it is worth experiencing. And, yes, uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely... Definitely some cool stuff in there. Yeah, a lot of fun. So that is My Friend Pedro on PC, Nintendo Switch, and, oh gosh, is that, it's on Game Pass, is that just on PC? I I gotta brush up on, I don't know whether that's on console or not. Anyways, PC and (laughs) Nintendo Switch, I can say confidently. That's that's true, yes, yes. Uh, All right. Go back into work tomorrow on on Monday and you'll find out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... Let's move on to a game that uh, I wish I could speak more about, but I've only played a small, small, small amount of. Um, this is Pathologic 2, which is a, uh, I mean, really just a developer that just kind of drew a line in the sand with uh, some of the work that they've done before, challenged people to, you know, to discover the really rich worlds that they uh, they create these games are from a ice pick lodge from uh, they are challenging games on a gameplay level on a philosophical level on a just engagement level like they are famous for being rather obtuse but really rewarding when you get into them um they've done a number of games before but the most famous is pathologic in which you would play three you you could play one of three characters uh, and you're encouraged to play all three stories kind of in succession making your way through basically a city that is being more and more infected by a plague and uh, there's a lot of kind of supernatural elements to it and a lot of symbolic elements it's very literary it's very theatrical you know, it's it's grim. It's kind of depressing. There's survival aspects as well, and it's all the things that make you kind of hesitate when you're playing a game, knowing that oh gosh, if I if this was my desert island game, then I would be a, I would have an enriched soul for it. But as a game that I'm going to you know spend a couple of hours on once a week or so like that that's a tall order to to play something so technically and spiritually demanding. They've come out with Pathologic 2 this year. From the people who have played both of them, I've really kind of universally heard that Pathologic 2 is a much easier way to experience the um the interesting aspects of Pathologic that were buried between uh, beneath all of these layers of um really demanding and intricate gameplay uh so you know i've i've only really dabbled it's a um it's a a quite nice looking game for again being kind of a grim gray depressing setup uh it's uh quite graphically capable the the writing again is uh is very interesting there's some really cool ideas being explored uh the pathologic series now can have some 
dicey translation from time to time, but all of that kind of adds to the mysterious David Lynchian kind of theatrical presentation of everything because it all is very dreamlike. It is all very like representative. So even in uh, moments of potentially poor translation, which this this game has much, much, much better translation than the original release of Pathologic. Um, there's a, I think it, it doesn't take anything away from the game. It just kind of adds to this dreamlike atmosphere of it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I can't give a personal recommendation just because I haven't played enough, but um, it, it's one that I'm, uh, I'm going to spend more time with and uh, basically from everyone that i've heard who has played it, it it sounds like it's really the way to play an important and uh unique wholly unique game in that uh i should say also pathologic 2 is a bit of a misnomer because you don't need to have played the first one this one serves as not only an expansion in the sequel sense but also as kind of a uh almost as kind of a remake in a way, not a one-for-one remake, but it treads a lot of the same ground to where you're not going to be lost if you if this is your first journey into Pathologic. So um, again, on on Game Pass, on PC and Xbox One, uh, you can uh, you can play Pathologic 2 right now, and it it very well might be one of your favorites of all time, and it very well might be something that doesn't gel with you but uh, to me, that's kind of exciting. That's a that's a cool dice roll to make there. <laughs> that's the medium for you. You could, you know, mm-hmm. one minute you could be um, crowing about things like um, uh, like Call of Duty, or indeed this. It doesn't, you know, it it's, it's a broad broad spectrum of games out there. I'm happy to say. Um, is this a Russian developer? Yes, I have seen this. After all, yes, I think I previewed or had the had them on for the first one. But uh, yes, I'll have to check my records. It's really ringing a lot of bells, but I play a lot of games, mm-hmm. as do you do, Ryan. So this is a good thing. It's a good thing that we play so many. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, um, I'm happy to hear that it's on Xbox or Ultimate uh, Game Pass. So I will have to have to double over the festive season. Sounds like a really happy, fun time game. So <laughs> yeah, I, it, it's one of those. It's like a. <laughs> You know, it's like reading War and Peace where it's like it might not be like a a fun experience, but like you're going to walk away having having something that you're going to be thinking about for the rest of your life. Indeed, it's it's, uh, potentially an investment, but less of an investment than Pathologic originally was. Pathologic 2 is by uh, by all accounts a a joy to play through in comparison to the original for what it's worth. (laughs) But anyways, consider that an. an endorsement by proxy. It sounds extremely interesting, but I just haven't played enough to give it a full thumbs up or thumbs down yet. So let's move on to, again, the exact opposite type of game. This is Pikuniku, which is another game that was published by Devolver Digital, developed by Sector Dub, and is a uh, uh, is a very silly game. It's bonkers. It's bonkers, yeah. everyone. Sorry. You play... Uh, it, it's a lovely, minimalist, uh, minimalist as hell art style that is uh, all just kind of very bright colors. It's like it's like a child's block set or like a, like a, a felt board or something like that. You know, it's just, you know, everything is, is very flat and 2D, um, but all the characters are 
Now, you play a character who is just a red bean with two long legs sticking out. The legs do uh, some very kind of funny IK type of stuff as they're walking around the world. And uh, it's just it's so entertaining just to like watch those little legs move in kind of like an Octodad kind of way. It's not difficult to control like Octodad, but just like watching the game figure out how to move this silly looking character around. is just inherently joyful. You know, there are certain actions you can take with the world. You can collect items and, and outfits and stuff that allow you to interact in, uh, in other ways. But the primary action that you can take on the world is just kicking things. And it's, you know, it's a very simple game. It's very low friction, uh, but it's just so funny. You know, there's uh, all these different characters you encounter. You go from village to village. Uh, they all have such funny dialogue that's written in a very, a very modern, very, uh, there's kind of a wave of games and cartoons, especially that, uh, that are written in a very, I would say beyond casual, uh, kind of, um, very rudimentary kind of way, but it's so endearing. It's kind of like everybody is like a toddler speaking to each other in a way, you know, there's the games that are written in a super casual style, like, um, like uh, the Frog Detective games and uh, Pikaniku. Um, there's, yeah, it's it's kind of a trend that's a starting yeah. up. And I don't really know what to call it, but yeah, I, you've mentioned I Frog like Detective, it. and then my brain's mm-hmm. gone flying off to Frog Fractions. I know it shouldn't, mm-hmm. but it just did. I'll now have yep. to retrieve it because I'll end up having a frog games reason. out there. Uh, yeah, yeah, but Often, um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Pikachu. I, I love the writing. I love the acting. Uh, you know, for as minimalist these characters are, like they do, they have such such brilliant facial expressions. Um, the game is really sharp and really funny. For as uh, as light as most of the humor is, there's also kind of this undercurrent of like anti capitalism, which is just like such a funny combination to have. Right. Yeah. This the the antagonist of the game is this character that is basically like you start off the game basically watching this commercial for free money in a way. It's this kind of like monopoly man character that is saying like, you know, let us move into your town and let us just take a few things that you don't want. It's all just trash. Anyways, let us take your trash and we'll give you money for it. Free money, everybody. And as you go through the game, it's kind of like you get a sense that like, Oh, they're actually, uh, they're actually taking some things that are more important than uh, than just trash, but it's a a fun uh, kind of send up of this very convenient consumer culture that we live in now. And uh, you you get the idea that like, oh, yeah, they're giving us lots of stuff, but you know w- what do we what do we do with it anymore? You know, it's not it's not precious anymore. If everyone has more money than they'll ever need, then like it what do you spend it on yeah it's 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 fun it's very uh very casual very silly very low friction and uh, a nice little time yeah i picked this up on the on the twitch thing because they were yeah, releasing yeah. it for free so uh, i have yet to delve into it. i've seen videos and i've heard other people chat about it it sounds like a game that i need to play so so thanks for highlighting it ryan yeah and it has a soundtrack by Callum Bowen, who I always really appreciate his musical work. He's a he's a brilliant composer. Um, I'd say this one isn't his best score, but it's uh, it has some really uh, really fun, really lively pieces in it. 
All right, let's let's move on. Again, I'm not going to have a lot to say about this one, but uh, I just wanted to highlight that uh, I've played a little tiny bit of Plants vs. Zombies Battle for Neighborville. I've, I uh, subscribe to e- no, Origin Access Premiere uh, because I wanted to play Jedi Fallen Order, but I didn't want to pay $60 for it because I uh, rarely pay $60 for video games anymore. Yeah, no so, one does that. It's just yeah, absurd. Um, yeah. So yeah, I just subscribed to a month of uh, Origin Access Premiere and got the deluxe edition of uh, Jedi Fallen Order for a month. And that was uh, more than enough time to play it, um, which is uh, fun. We'll talk about that later. But uh, uh, one of the games that was uh, available was Plants vs. Zombies Battle for Neighborville. I have not played any of the Plants vs. Zombies third-person shooters, which is an interesting thing to say because there are now more third-person shooters in the Plants vs. Zombies series than there are the traditional tower defense type of games. So, uh, I don't know. That's that's weird. It's one yeah. of those, if you had told me 10 years ago, I wouldn't have believed you. But here we are. It's, uh, it's a game I have really mixed feelings about for the short amount of time that I spent with it. Um, I, I didn't engage in any of the multiplayer, which I know is the bread and butter of the game. So I I can't really speak with any authority. I just did some of the single player offerings, but, um, it's a game that I, I love being in the world. It's, it just feels so beautifully realized. Um, you know, it's, it's, there are these big open world hubs. There's all the levels just looks so, um, so beautiful in the way of like anyone who's gone to Disneyland and has walked around Mickey's Toontown where it just feels like you are in a cartoon because all of the, the streetlights and all the buildings and all the fire hydrants are all drawn uh, or all, you know, sculpted in a way that emulates 2d animation. So well, it's kind of that same effect where everything is curvy and bent and twisty and silly. And, uh, it's, it's so, um, it's so lovely to look at and uh, so nice to be a part of that world. I just don't really like the gameplay that much. I didn't find it to be that interesting. Your character moves pretty slowly. Uh, the shooting felt kind of bad. The There's some like aspects of it that are a little confusing, weirdly enough. like It's not super clear how much ammo you have left before you need to reload and what reloading even does. And there, uh, yeah, I don't know. And it's just like, you know, maybe there's just a little bit of friction as it's my first time with a third person shooter plants versus zombies game. But like, I, I enjoyed looking at the world. I just didn't really enjoy doing any of the things in it. And some of the missions that it put me on at the beginning, the single player stuff were like, go somewhere and find out that you can't get in and then do a boring escort quest on the way back. And I was just like, ah, 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 I can't really be bothered with this right now. So it didn't make a strong first impression, but it uh, obviously there was a lot of love that went into the game. Um, the characters are, are beautifully animated. The worlds, as I've said, are uh, really nice to look at. I just kind of wish that I... I could just take a little stroll around the world and then just call it good. <laughs> so, there we go. I still remember Plants vs. Zombies as a, a thing that happened 10 years ago. It's actually longer yeah. than that. It's 12 now. And uh, it was like the height of when 1UP was a thing. 
and people they were getting all excited mm-hmm. about this indie section and here's a crazy game made by this small studio no one heard of and now look at them and they're still they're yeah. still milking this they're still just like really it was a it was a tower defense game that wasn't terrible good job but this is I don't, I don't know what this is I mean I, I, it's up there with like Angry Birds and that kind of thing although that's gone away now but um, I mean the Angry Birds movie too just released this year so <laughs> oh okay I'll shut up then what do I know <laughs> I mean the only film I've uh, pre-booked to go to see is a certain one that opens next Thursday as we want to mm. know at the time of recording by the way so. yes of course <laughs> and we'll, we'll probably circle back to that uh, in we a will, games yeah. time here but yeah, anyways I have nothing more to contribute to this particular one but well done for for you know for having a go it just it just feels kind of weird you know there was that period of time when the general public discovered video games when uh phone games started taking off and again it was that uh angry birds kind of leading the way and you would see merchandise of two or three of these big games kind of at all of the retailers and you know and it was like it was kind of a novelty thing in a way that like those of us who have been in video game were just kind of like yeah i mean you can get you can get mario socks of course but like when they start putting angry bird socks in normal people stores (laughs) then all of a sudden everyone's like oh how how novel how unique you could get angry birds which is something on your phone on your socks and it's just like okay yeah, uh, I can see this is like striking a chord with with a certain audience. But for those of us, I think uh, speaking very broadly and generally within the video gaming space, like the the novelty wasn't there and it just came across as being extremely uh, annoying and very uh, uh, just kind of off putting in a way. And so a few of these games that did start off as like really, you know, seeds of good ideas uh, ended up becoming very commercialized and very watered down. Um, you know, Plants vs. Zombies 1, 2, Plants vs. Zombies 2 was just such a huge dip in quality and game design ethics. Uh, it just, yeah, it's just, you know, they had some pretty decent character designs at the beginning. You know, nothing special, but good enough. And then just the amount that they've milked them since then, it's just like, oh, let them die. <laughs> yeah. They did two games, Peggle and Plant vs. Zombies. Good job. Uh, Thanks, EA. But, um, anyways. Like they're, they're so risk-averse. This is important. They are so yeah. risk-averse. They will not let them do anything else. And it's yeah, it's disgusting. Anyway. That's, that's EA. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. One that I am actually excited to talk about is uh, Pokemon Sword and Shield. This is the uh, eighth generation. Eighth, yeah, I believe it is the eighth generation of Pokemon now. Each generation of Pokemon introduces a new region of uh, the world that you're exploring, a new group of Pokemon usually. Usually it's uh, grounded in new technology and just kind of represents a step forward for the series. Uh, as they they move on to something kind of bigger and better, a different direction, different uh, different story, and then there's usually, I mean, there's always either a third version that kind of collates the the best of the two versions that Pokemon launches as, and uh, and adds a little bit to it. So you'd get Pokemon Yellow, Pokemon Crystal, that was like a combination of gold and silver. You can catch 
both the legendaries and you can get a little bit of extra content, but it was essentially kind of the same game over again. Or there was one generation in which they just did like straight sequels to the games. And that was Pokemon Black and White moved on to Pokemon Black 2 and White 2. This is the start of a new generation and is uh, very interesting for being the first of the mainline JRPG Pokemon series that is on a home console on the Nintendo Switch. It is still on handheld as the Switch functions as both, but this is the big jump to HD. Uh, Obviously, there have been Pokemon games on console before, spinoffs like Pokemon Snap, but even more kind of mainline games like Pokemon Stadium that even though it lacked the RPG aspect still had the uh, the core fundamental battle system intact and you can see the Pokemon and move around stuff um, Pokemon XD Gale of Darkness was a was an RPG but not in the typical Pokemon style so this is uh, the first real true mainline Pokemon game for console and it's it's, it's uh, kind of exciting to see it in HD it, it looks really nice but uh, I'd say that the uh, the jump to HD actually didn't make as big of a difference as I was expecting. And I think that's because uh, the art style is really conducive to the 3DS system. I think that they the, the games look really good on 3DS. And that's because this isn't a fidelity game. Um, it's not a game that has a lot of visual detail. Um, but the... Stuff like animation is pulling a lot of the um, a lot of the weight here, and even though a lot of people, a lot of Pokemon fans, which are the most vocal minority of them, are an insufferable group of whiners, unfortunately, that just will not be happy with anything. Uh, they complain about the the animations. Oh, you know they're they're the same animations as the 3DS versions. Like, yeah, there's like 800 of these things. Like, you're not gonna reanimate all of them for each game but like i i think that the animations are so expressive uh, i just love the idols for all of the different pokemon and the attacks that they do and they have so much character and so much energy and liveliness i just uh i i really love it um just making a team of these of these creatures that you can really call your own and really grow attached to uh, i think that the uh d- the designs of the new pokemon um in uh, that were introduced in this generation are i mean kind of hit and miss as always but uh trending towards being uh pretty strong i I think the starters in particular are some of the most uniformly good starters that we've had pretty much ever uh there's there's usually one kind of stinker among the three of them and uh, in this generation i feel like there are two that are significantly better than one of them but like even the one that's less well designed than the other two is still like interesting and still uh fun to look at like definitely not an affront like some of the starters have been in the past but um that's uh getting into the weeds of it this this particular region of the pokemon world is uh based on uh based on the uk so it's interesting you get uh, there's a city that's kind of based on London. There's castles. There's, you know, different regions that feel like small towns that you would run through in, in Britain. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's nice. Like, I've been to Britain, and so I've seen, uh, obviously, not as much as uh, many of the contributors to Canaan Rents. Uh, I don't live there, but uh, 
you know, it just, it's fun to see their interpretation of, uh, of, uh, the, the British lifestyle. And, um, some of the Pokemon play into that. There's teacup Pokemon <laughs> that evolve into a teapot type of Pokemon, which is, uh, which is quite fun. There's, uh, Pokemon that are based off of footballers and Pokemon that are based off of secret agents. And it's just, you know, they're, they're having fun with it. I will say that they've written all of the characters to use British colloquialisms in a way that sound like tourists reading, like Googling what are British colloquialisms. It's very cute and very token. (laughs) Like I've, uh, I've screenshotted many of the, uh, many of the phrases that the characters say to you. And uh, I'm, uh, I haven't gotten around to uploading them yet, but I, I really want to share them with the Canarins team and just see if they, if they feel touched that somebody did the research or whether they're just going to facepalm the entire time at how <laughs> on the nose much of it is. But it's, it's very cute. <laughs> I do find that now, uh, because of British culture has now eked its wealth across the world mm-hmm. more than before, uh, a lot of your fellow country folk can uh, understand British English. They don't speak it deliberately. I know why they don't say the words, but if I say someone like something like, oh, yeah, that, that, that's absolutely a complete spanner. They know what I mean. They don't <laughs> want to say the word, but they know the tone and they know why I'm calling that person a spanner. And it's like, yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, they won't say the word because, to quote a friend of mine from across the pond, um, don't want to come across as trying too hard. And also... Yeah. You don't stress the vowel in the correct place. I say correct. There's certain vowels that we stress more than like um, mm-hmm. than than American English does. It doesn't sound right. I say right. It doesn't sound like we normally hear it. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't. It comes out like no. They stressed the wrong vowel. Did I? Damn it! But you know what the words what mean. What a spanner that one is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or like oh yeah that, that that's just bobbins. Yeah, it is it is it is that word you just used. <laughs> Or it yeah, is when I when I hear somebody with an American accent specifically go out of their way to say arse, it's just like yeah. uh, no, 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 don't, no, please no, don't, 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 <laughs> just say ass because that's how yeah. you, that's we how you have spell a word it. for that already. You got a word for that already. We we're the ones that <laughs> put the R in. That's us. That's our thing. Arse, you know, it's a thing. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a thing. We we can do that and we can get away with it, but. Going back to Pokemon, um, Pokemon arrived when I was quite old, um, probably in my, let's see, uh, late late teens, maybe. When did it Pokemon arrive? Was it in 18? It was uh, 1996 in Japan and then 98 in the rest of the world. Yeah, so I would say, yeah, my mid-20s. So it's not a thing I'm, I'm endeared to, really. But mm-hmm. um, And I do know it's a really good JRPG, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but the way you describe it, and also, I didn't know until about four or five years ago that it wasn't Nintendo making them. Right, it was it was another company that now exclusively makes them and has been doing this for many years. It's, it's Game Freak, which they they do other games as well. You know, they've done. Uh, I, th- I think they were the studio behind Tembo, the Baddest Elephant, a few years back. They've done oh, a few yes. kind of experimental games like uh, yeah. Harmonite, and they just this year put out Little Town Hero. So they are doing things other than Pokemon, but it's a it's developed by Game Freak and then published by the Pokemon Company, yeah. which is a uh, kind of a joint um, publishing house that is owned one third by Game Freak, one third by Nintendo, and one third by Creatures Inc. 
Yep, it's certainly a cash cow for Nintendo that helps them yes. sell their systems. We've been doing it for years. Again, I have no animosity to Pokemon at all. That's stupid. I'm not doing. Not, I'm not that. I just don't have any experience in it. Yeah, I, I have a friend of mine who uh, called it the the Pokemon tax because mm-hmm. <laughs> when when you know you had to buy it, you know that was his tax. It's a thing you had to buy every year, or it is, it is an annual <laughs> thing, I believe. It's just like, yeah, oh, oh, Pokemon tax. Here it comes. But yeah. Yeah, I've uh, I've played every generation of Pokemon so far, like I've, ever since the very beginning, and I've I've really grown up with the series. Um, it's interesting to watch the games evolve, uh, no pun intended, one to the next, because you know, for being such a cash cow, they still feel like plucky indie games in a way. Like they're still really rough around the edges in ways that you wouldn't expect, but they're also trying out a bunch of new ideas every time which is uh really exciting and really frustrating when some of those new ideas that you really liked in a previous game don't make it into the next one where it's like oh i thought that one was kind of a success well why are we abandoning it but uh you know that happens um you know there's uh it's just they they've experimented in the past with kind of like online features that allow you to more easily search for Pokemon that you need to complete your collection and trade with people across the world that have been stripped back in this game. There's no, in uh, sun and moon, there was a, a really tremendous system where you could, uh, you could search for individual Pokemon and then you can see everyone who has that Pokemon listed as available for trade and what they want for it in return. And so you can just really like, you know, it's a great way of filling out your Pokedex and of getting uh, some really rare Pokemon. Sometimes there's regional variants that uh, will look a little bit different depending on where in the real world the person who caught that Pokemon is located. So, you know, it's it's a nice way of kind of like bringing that whole community together. Um, in this game, they've replaced that with uh, you could still link trade if you have uh, you know, somebody's friend code. Or you could do what they call a surprise trade, which I uh, I dislike. You basically put a Pokemon into the surprise trade system. A few seconds go by as it looks for somebody to match with. And then it will just give you, in exchange, whatever Pokemon they decided to put into the surprise trade system as well. And so, you know, sometimes you'll get some really nice people who put some really rare Pokemon in there. And that could be a great way of uh, of collecting the other starter Pokemon that you didn't get to choose. That could be a great way of getting the Pokemon from uh, from the other version that are other version exclusives. Although I think uh, the player base skews heavily towards Pokemon Sword rather than Pokemon Shield, so there's a bit of an imbalance there. Um, but it's it just it feels so aimless. It feels like because you know if you really want to maximize your collection then you always have to kind of be feeding pokemon into this random trade system and it's usually getting something crappy in return and then feeding that directly back into the system it just feels like you're trying to play this rpg while at the same time pulling the handle of a slot machine every few seconds and there's long animations that play every time a trade is completed and if you're just looking for something in particular, like I was looking for the grass starter forever, then uh, it can take a really, really long time. And it's just, uh, it is, it feels sloppy when there was a better solution in previous Pokemon games. It's like, why is this not, 
why is this not the way that it used to be? That was better. But I guess they don't want people just kind of like getting everything that they want right up front. I don't know. There's some, uh, there's some new mechanics. There's, I think the most interesting thing is there's what's called a wild area, which is a kind of a one big open world area um, that borders two of the game's major cities uh, that's kind of broken into smaller regions, no loading screens between them, but you know, there's like a deserty region. There's a, uh, there's a lake. And so, you know, there's all these different regions and Pokemon are uh, more easy to encounter out here. Uh, there's a mixture of the Pokemon let's go style of, uh, you can see the Pokemon walking around in the grass and then there are some Pokemon, usually the smaller Pokemon, that are still random encounters. You just see a little exclamation point when you're walking around in tall grass and a little rustle of grass that is running towards you. You can either avoid that to avoid the encounter, or you can run into it to uh, to begin the Pokemon battle. So it's not it's it's a mixture of kind of Chrono Trigger like see your enemy on the field and choose to engage versus the Final Fantasy style random encounters that Pokemon always had in the past. So, you know, there are some Pokemon that you can only get in those random uh, encounters, and there are some that most of them you can see. And so it, it allows you to not waste your time loading battle animations when you're just looking for something very specific. Uh, it allows you to be selective and uh, with what you're uh, with what you're aiming to battle. Um, and it can also be, you know, it's just fun to see a Pokemon walking around to say, oh, I don't have that one yet. And then just, you know, make a beeline for it, run for it and challenge it to a battle and try to catch it. But there are both uh, in the wild area, there are both Pokemon that are kind of of a uh, appropriate level to where your Pokemon in your party are based on how many gym badges you have. Uh, and then there are stronger Pokemon that are just kind of walking outside of the grass, walking around. And those Pokemon are usually higher level until you get to the end game and uh, tend to be either really rare Pokemon, Pokemon that you aren't going to encounter anywhere else, or Pokemon that are like fully evolved versions of Pokemon so that, you know, you don't have to spend all the time training them. You could just kind of start off with the level three evolution of it. Uh, and, you know, they are more difficult to catch than the uh, the ones that are just in the grass. But I don't love the way that it's implemented because these like strong Pokemon, until you have a certain number of gym badges, you can't even catch them in the first place. Back throughout all of Pokemon history, if you have a Pokemon that is above a certain level, you know, they uh, they didn't want you just trading with a friend, getting a level 100 Pokemon and just blasting through the story off of the back of that one Pokemon alone. As you gain more gym badges, Pokemon of higher levels will start to obey you. And if you get a Pokemon that's above that level, then it will just disobey you and it will be almost useless in battle. And uh, so that was the way that they kind of controlled for uh, keeping people within keeping people honest as far as like the power balance goes. And in this one, you can't even catch those Pokemon until you have a certain gym level, which is too bad because I think it's kind of an interesting challenge to see a Pokemon that clearly out levels your team as like a special, you know, like special challenge. Let's get in there. Let's, let's, let's just try to fight this thing. See how it goes. You might be, you might use all of your Pokemon 
to uh, to whittle it down to its health. It could blast through your entire team. You've got one left and you throw your Pokeball at it and then it's just like, oh, you can't actually you can't actually throw your Pokeball because you're just not allowed to. It wouldn't obey you anyways. You're not even allowed to catch it in the first place, which is just disappointing. But um, uh, mechanically, um, there's a couple of other neat additions. There's what are called raid battles, which plays into there's a, a thing called Dynamaxing and Gigantamaxing. I don't know the difference between those two terms, but they seem to use them interchangeably in this game where Pokemon can grow to absurd sizes. I don't know how physically, but um, it, there are certain battles where there are clouds circling overhead and that's kind of a, a signifier that there's Dynamax energy in this arena. Uh, usually during like gym battles and certain um, certain raids and stuff that you can go on. It's uh, it it's kind of lazy in that you know in the past they've done like mega evolutions where certain Pokemon can evolve further than they could before for a limited amount of time, and you get this like cool badass version of of the Pokemon that you've known for so long. So it allowed for some really creative redesigns. Um, in the last generation, they did uh, Z moves, which are these really nice kind of bespoke moves that are uh, that can be owned by specific Pokemon that need special items to uh, to pull off that are very powerful, can kind of turn the tide of battle. And, and in this one, it just feels like they're kind of like just making the uh, the 3D model bigger. It's kind of stretching it out, which is very easy to do from a program perspective. But um, I got to say, like, I wasn't a believer in it before I played it, but it actually does. It actually is kind of cool just because like the gym battles, especially all culminate in these like giant Pokemon battles. And it, it is like a, you know, Godzilla battle at that point. Uh, and they all take place in these arenas that look like football stadiums. And it's just like, there's something about having the, the cheering crowd and these giant Pokemon that are, you know, throwing these enormous things across the the field at each other and the crowd is there and it's just, you know it's exciting there's it, it's kind of it puts on a fun atmosphere um for as uh, simple an addition as that is but uh yeah it's i would say it's it's on the easier side of rpgs there's there's i encountered very little friction throughout but it's not like a complete pushover i would say there's just enough of uh, a friction to make it interesting. Um, I will say over time, the Pokemon series battle system has become slightly less interesting to me because uh, I think over the generations, type advantages have become more and more uh, important, um, more and more powerful in that if, and maybe this was the way it was back in the originals and I just wasn't good enough at it back then. But uh, if you throw a attack at the enemy and it is super effective against them, nine times out of 10, it will just one shot them and that will just be it. And I'm not sure why it works that way because Pokemon battles are always so much more interesting when they are multi-turn battles. And, uh, you know, I like having to balance my team who you know maybe my my uh, you know my best pokemon is now down at one third health and i have to think like do i save this for the final battle or do i use it now but if everything is just kind of a one-shot kill 
And it's just about memorizing, you know, who is what type and what type do I use against that. There's no reason to ever use status effects. There's no reason to ever use buffs or debuffs. And it's just kind of like, it all just makes the battle system way more simple than it really should be. And it strips away a lot of the interesting stuff that it could be doing behind the scenes, uh, which is a bit too bad. But yeah, it's it does sound unfortunate when they sort of take, like you said earlier, they were taking away things that you thought, well, this is actually a good idea. Why didn't you pursue this? And mm-hmm. I think the annual release of them hasn't helped it any because they have to keep on top of things. And clearly, uh, you and I know they're probably working two years in advance if they've got any mm-hmm. sense about them. Uh, but even still, that's still quite a punishing schedule. Yeah. And, you know, this game, it, I think it's worth saying that there was a lot of controversy around it at the time of its release in that. Um, there was a lot of complaints coming from longtime series fans. Uh, the difficulty was one aspect, but I think most importantly, uh, there is what people are calling Dexit, which is uh, appropriate because this game is set in the facsimile of Britain. But it was uh, basically in creating this game for the first time, they've basically stripped uh, the data of more than half of the Pokemon that exist to this point, which there are almost a thousand at this point. So, you know, you got to do what you got to do, really. Uh, But, you know, Pokemon games have always been, have always had limited, uh, limited Pokedexes. You know, you can only catch a certain number of them within the world that you're in, but you could always trade them up from previous versions and battle with your favorites and, you know, you can always bring your Pokemon forward into the newer games to uh, to still experience them in this new space. And in this one, they've basically kind of closed the door to that in saying that, you know, we're narrowing down the Pokedex. It is now just, you know, 40% of the old Pokemon are staying, 60% are being exiled. And uh, we may not bring them back in future games. We may, we may not. You're not going to be able to carry your old ones forward. That's just the way it's going to be. You know, it's it's kind of too bad. I, I understand the the frustration, especially from those who have had some of their favorite Pokemon removed from the game. Uh, there are some pretty popular Pokemon that just didn't make the cut, which is too bad. And I can definitely see how people are upset about that. But but I yeah, I'm kind of like there's still, I would say, too many Pokemon. Like I like collecting the Pokemon. It's it's my favorite thing to do in these games. I just like I run through the story and then I spend the vast majority of my time in the end game collecting. But, you know, back in the old Pokemon, back in the old days, uh, you used to, it used to be such a manageable number of Pokemon. There used to be just 151 and that was all that there was that like you got to know each Pokemon because you would continue to encounter them in battles, in random encounters the gym leaders would have the same Pokemon that you can catch out in the wild. And it's just like, you know, each Pokemon became kind of like, you kind of got to know, oh, you know, this is a Butterfree. This is what I can expect from this battle. Whereas, you know, even with Dexit, there are still so many Pokemon that it feels like you're encountering entirely net new Pokemon all of the time with almost every battle. And it's just like, you don't get that sense that there are pokemon that specific pokemon that you should always dread seeing because you might not ever see them again there's you don't get the sense of uh that shared familiarity other than the pokemon that you choose to carry in your party uh, and so you know it's uh 
that's a bit unfortunate, but I don't really know what I would do to, to solve that problem. Uh, I think they just kind of rely upon people having had those attachments in previous games and carrying them into this one. It's an interesting game. The, the story is kind of, it's kind of forgettable, but I will say there are some odd choices in the story in a way that like, like I've said before, this studio game freak, they feel like, like somebody making a call of duty scale game as far as popularity goes, but still using highly indie sensibilities. And so they'll make just like wild baffling choices that are just like, all right, cool. I love that the game still has these rough edges. Like, I love that they're still doing things with seemingly no oversight. <laughs> it's great uh, for such a global brand. But this game has some weird choices in its story. Like, you, you, you've you never had such a greater sense that you are doing specific ego damage to the people that are around you. <laughs> you know, your your arrival for all intents and purposes that you're up against uh, throughout the game uh, is a friend of yours, a lifelong friend, and has always dreamed about becoming a Pokemon master. And then every time you battle him and win, because you have to win to progress the story, you you get a real tangible sense that you are blocking him from achieving his dream. And you watch his dream slowly crumble throughout the game as he kind of gives up hope of becoming the great Pokemon master because he sees that really you're the one that is going to inherit that title. And it's just like, oh, he's such a nice guy. I don't want to do this to him. Um, and then the ultimate villain in a way, like it, it's a real like 11 o'clock turn of this character. Basically an analog for somebody who is trying to make inconvenient changes to society's conveniences now to protect against future climate-based catastrophe. And so it's like, uh, I mean, is this a side of history that we want to be on to stop the climate change, to basically be climate change deniers and to stop the people that are trying to take reasonable precautions against disaster for future generations? I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> That went to a place I wasn't expecting, but yeah. Yeah. It's strange. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's very strange. But anyways, so, there's, the there's a lot there. But Pokemon, Sword and Shield, yeah. not my favorite of the Pokemon games, but still, it's it's a joy to go back to. And uh, I'll be playing Pokemon games till I die. So Yeah, well, still it's not making them, which is probably either way. So, there next we game. Go. So now you talk for a while. Let's get into some yeah. Rebel Galaxy Outlaw. Rebel Galaxy Outlaw. Um, this is a game that I was very excited when I first saw, and it is basically Wing Commander Privateer brought up to date. So Wing Commander Privateer is a very, very, very old DOS game. I do mean MS-DOS game. It was out just before Windows 95 came into being, so it's from that era, that sort of very small window of time between 1990 sort of 2 to 94 when that's an extraordinary period of creativity then um but you needed to have a uh, degree in computer science to run any of the games but um anyway i had fond memories of the privateer but uh, hasn't aged well hasn't aged well and the developer double damage games of rebel galaxy outlaw which is the follow on title from uh, uh rebel galaxy i kind of put it it's like a capital ship simulator uh, similar to uh, Diablo in its structure. And uh, what Rebel Galaxy Outlaw is more like Elite. Um, it was like a freeform 
sandbox game where you go flying off into the galaxy and just do what you like. There is a story to follow, though, and if you follow that story, you get better weapons, better equipment, and your ship gets bigger and bigger, and you can buy different ships, and you just and it is an extraordinarily good game. Really, really fun and entertaining, well put together, wonderful soundtrack, uh, licensed soundtrack, especially licensed for Twitch. So they've actually got a, a special sort of license deal with all the music creators. So if you stream it on Twitch, you won't get uh, slapped down and uh, shut down because of the music. It's wonderful. I streamed it for five hours one week. Um, it was really um one of the most entertaining games I've ever played this year and other years, I have to say. And I'm gonna I'm gonna dive back into it, I think, over the Christmas period because it really is an extraordinary game. It rewards play and it's not hard, not complicated. You get into it very quickly. It's a very gentle learning curve. Um, it introduces you to new things. What one of the most extraordinary things I had, I had such a time with it, was that it was um, this. Um, you can customize your ship. You can draw things on your ship with it. If you've got a digital little tablet, which I do have with a pen, you can actually draw things uh, on your ship and make art and custom art and put sort of graffiti on your ship and do logos. And it's a it's a full blown art sort of package, sort of texture map editor that it comes with the game for free. Um, and uh, I I can't say more. It's just extraordinary. Extraordinary game. I know it's out on Windows PC. Um, is it out on these consoles yet, Ryan? Um, I I have not seen it on no. consoles yet, but I haven't really no. specifically looked for it. I know it's an Epic game exclusive at this, at this point on PC. It is, it is yes. Uh, full disclosure, I did get a review copy of it because I did interview the developer for the second time. They've been on the show before, talking about Rebel Galaxy, the original one. Uh, but this is a prequel. Actually, the story is set before the events that happened in Rebel Galaxy. So, uh, yeah, uh, just the fantastic the animations. Of, when you get shot and the windscreens, the, 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 the viewing screen of your ship starts to crack and stuff, it's things, wires start falling out, and th- it's great. It's so good. It's You can even buy a little knickknack so you can put on your dashboard like a little Hawaii sort of doll. So, it's just... You just don't need it, but it's just a nice touch. It's just a human touch to really well put together, really well thought out. The one wonderful thing about this game is you always get a sense of progression, be it financial where you do some trades and actually get some stuff or or ranked up because you completed a mission successfully. Um, there are escort missions, but they're not dreadful. They designed them in such a way that they're not nigh on impossible. Um, you do get an idea of where all of the ships are. You can protect them and that, that sort of thing. It's good. Really good game. Um, it basically takes all the bits of Privateer that didn't work, improves them, and brings it up to date. So it's basically what how you remember Privateer to be, but it wasn't. Um, and it's just like, actually, no, this is how it should have been. Hats off to Double Dev. They were constantly updating it and tweaking it and and patching it uh, and doing it all, working on it all the time because that's the kind of developer that they are. And it's a very big game, very big game. And I'm not surprised that they're having to tweak it and, and constantly patch it and stuff. Because there's so many variables, so many sort of configurations of a ship you can have that eventually you could actually end up breaking the game if you're not careful. So they're, they're very, they're constantly, uh, maintaining it and monitoring it so it is not pushed out there to die far from it they are fully behind it so i'm looking forward to its eventual arrival on consoles it's probably sometime next year by the sounds of things very cool uh so what is the what is the moment-to-moment gameplay like on that one 
Okay, well, that's the fair question. So um, it is a space combat simulation or space trading simulation, I should say. So you're constantly in a, typically most of the time, you're in space in your ship flying from point to point, engaging in either trading, sort of going to a, a, a trading area or a vessel or a space station or a planet where you actually uh, dock. And then when you dock, you actually land on the planet. Um, and uh, the sort of it was the the, the rhythm would be um, buy stuff, launch, engage in combat if you need to, or find things, or do do the mission, whatever thing you're doing. Then land, sell things, maybe buy things, repair the ship, maybe dabble in a bit of sort of discussion mm-hmm. with people. Like you could have, you can interact with people on the station. You can go to the bartender, see if there's any jobs going, any sort of rumors. You can also join factions and guilds and do missions for them. They they pay higher, but they're higher risk and actually color coded. So that's the flow. It's basically fly from point to point. So it's a bit of FedEx in that regard, but you're not really dropping off and delivering. You're trading things. It's 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 very similar to Elite and those other sandbox games. Uh, it's but uh, it's it, there's more narrative. There's more structure to it. You're not you're not expected. You're not thrown out and said. Go on, off you go, do what you like. There is an element of that, but you do have some structure. There are goals. There are things you can actually pursue. Um, so you can mainline this game very easily, and you still get a wonderful experience. But like the um, like the best, like Skyrim, I, there is a version of uh, the, the, the little cave, the interesting cave that you find lying on the side as you walk along Skyrim and go, oh, there's a cave. Do you want to go in there? No, I'm going here. No, come on, it's a cave. It's a, come on. In this, in this game, uh, in, in Rebel Galaxy Outlaw, it's not a cave, it's a distress signal. You're just flying along hyperspace and says, oh, it's a distress signal. Do you want to you help? Do you want to you know, pop over and just, come on, they're in, they're in trouble. My advice to anyone playing this game when they're first playing it, don't do that. Mm. You'll, 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 be, have your, your, you'll, be, you'll be killed very quickly because the level of uh, power you need to actually overcome those particular missions are usually... And over and above what you're you're able to, and when you start out, when you you know you you four or five hours in, maybe more, then then you can probably take those on. You'll be fine, but uh, there are times when you find it so oh god, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die because you just get overwhelmed and overpowered. But that's basically the rhythm of play. Um, do some things in a base, launch out in space, danger, danger, do things, land, repeat. All right, cool. So you'd give that one a high recommend then. Ha- Absolutely. If you like your space combat sandbox game with freedom to do what you like, Rebel Galaxy Outlaw is the game for you. All right. Cool. Rebel Galaxy Outlaw. Moving on now to uh, Shakedown Hawaii. This is one that I've been uh, having my... I've had my eye on for a long time now. This was announced, I I think, in the Nindies showcase before the Nintendo Switch launched, and it just took a long time to actually finally land. But it's a follow-up of sorts to Retro City Rampage, which I I actually really like. Which uh, That is kind of a... It's like if a top-down Grand Theft Auto game existed on the NES uh, and, and built within like weirdly specific specifications of the NES, uh, then that, that would be what that game is. Um, it, it was very funny. It was uh, a lot of really like 
really funny, really sharp references to other video games and just like a good kind of like mile a minute type of comedy that I really connected with. Of course, comedy is all very subjective, but it it was like airplane humor, like the movie airplane where they would just throw so many things at you that like some of them are going to hit, you know, just by law of averages. And uh, I, I ended up really liking uh, Retro City Rampage. I thought it was a nice enough game to play that, you know, it it was it was fun to drive around. It was fun to collect money and to upgrade your your stuff. And it was just a it was a nice time. I, I really enjoyed it. And so I was looking forward to this this sequel in a way, uh, Shakedown Hawaii, which is built on a uh, built to look like a Super Nintendo or a Sega Genesis type game. A lot more colors, a lot more kind of lush animation. Um, really a, a beautiful game. Uh, it still kind of maintains that top-down Grand Theft Auto type of gameplay, uh, but it just, you know, it looks a lot different, a lot more detailed this time around. There's a lot of freedom in what you can do, um, uh, but I I didn't end up really connecting with this one, and I don't really know why, because there are... The gameplay is fun. It's still fun to drive around. It's still fun to shoot things. It's still fun to take your flamethrower and uh, burn down a whole forest. You know, there's so much you can do in this game. I, I like games with just like dumb, repetitive things to do, like upgrading your business and, you know, that kind of thing where it's just kind of like, you know, easy gameplay loops that um, that all kind of feed back into each other. And I don't know why I just didn't connect with this, though. I just think the game this time, as opposed to its prequel, I don't really find funny. I don't really like the characters. You know, you're playing a real scumbag of a CEO of this company who lives in Hawaii. You are uh, basically doing whatever it takes to up-level your business. And so there's a lot of, like, Grand Theft Auto style commentary on society and societal trends. And it's like, you know, he's thinking like, well, what if we get into VR? Kids are into that kind of thing today. And so you spend, you know, some amount of money researching VR. And then it turns out you have to go to some rival to steal the technology and stuff like that. And it's all, you know, it tries to be very kind of like socially aware, not in a positive way, just like in a Grand Theft Auto taking the piss kind of way. But, uh, very modern but at the same time like is everything is just so mean-spirited and kind of basic in the uh in the level of like satire and parody that like it just there's no real humor there there's no more like parody of video games or culture like there was in the first game that really kind of drove a lot of the humor that connected with me the most and so in this one i just find myself not really liking the character, not really being that entertained by the story. And I think that did suck a lot of the enjoyment of the game out of it for me, as opposed to its prequel. But, you know, there's there's a nice progression loop. The graphics are superb. Um, I can't fault the game for not caring, obviously. There's so obviously a passion project. I just kind of wish it had a little bit more to say, a little bit more of a creative voice and vision other than just being kind of like pointlessly mean and, uh, you know, just playing like a mean, bitter, kind of stupid, rich old man just doesn't really feel fun in the era that we live in right now. Like maybe at some other point, but like Trump's president, I don't really want to be essentially a Donald Trump type character in 
this video game. Like I just, you know, let's, let's do something else for a little while. So maybe I'll come back to it when, uh, at some point in the future, but I, I was just kind of disappointed by this one. Unfortunately, just didn't connect with me, but that's the way it goes sometimes. When you can't relate to the character, it's difficult to get a grips with. The only exception to that that immediately springs to mind, and there's a re- good reason why one can't relate to this particular character because it's difficult to know what's going on in the first place, is Hotline Miami. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why you have to... I don't think you know why you, the character is having to go around and kill everything and everyone. Uh, I think he's in a drug-filled stupor anyway, of uh, fueled, I should say. So I no excuse for the level of destruction he commits, but it doesn't matter because the music's amazing and he just you just, you just keep going, right? It just because it's it's the game, damn it. That's what that's what drives you with Hollow Miami. But if you haven't got that to latch onto and you have to then lean a little bit into the narrative and the narrative's not there and a character you're playing is quite frankly obnoxious and, you know, deserves to be in prison, then or, you know <laughs> uh it it's difficult to really engage with and you're gonna bounce off of it if you have certain sensibilities. And that that's happened to me a fair few times, especially in GTA games when I know it's satire. I get that. Absolutely. It's ridiculous. But sometimes you just go, I can't. I just can't. You know, it's like I can't project myself into this person and do the things yeah. they're asking me to do. I just can't do it. Call me a snowflake or whatever, whatever you like. I don't care. I can't do it. And uh, it's one of the reasons I've only ever completed one GTA, and that's GTA 4. I still haven't done five. Yeah. And none of the others I've finished either. I mean, I liked... I like Trevor in that game, you know, for he's like the yeah. least relatable person to me personally. Like he's the opposite <laughs> type of person that I am. But like I understood his mindset in a way as twisted as it was like really Michael was the one that I couldn't relate to in that one because he was just like a rich white guy who was just whining that everything isn't perfect. It's just like really good instead of being perfect. And so, you know, like he was the one that I had a really trouble like connecting with. Uh, which was odd because he was kind of like set up as the audience POV character as the other characters are the ones that were supposed to be the more kind of like out there ones. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's there's characters that are like completely foreign to my experience, like Disco Elysium, like that character is a drug addict and a drunk, which I am neither of. Uh, but, um, you know, I still like I, I still really enjoy inhabiting that character and like you know, characters as far back as like, you know, Raziel, I have nothing in common with him, but like, you know, there's a, there's an interesting aspect to how he's written, which I just feel doesn't really come through with, uh, with the cast of Shakedown Hawaii, but I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I give it a cautious recommend for people who enjoy that type of game for the gameplay itself, but it just really wasn't for me. Okay. I'm interested in learning more about this one. I've played a little bit of it and I'm uh, curious if, if it got through to you, this is uh, that game company's follow-up to uh, to journey in a very direct sense. Uh, this is sky children of the light. Yeah. I deleted this sucker <laughs> massive misstep on that game company. Let's talk about it a little bit. There's similarities between journey uh, and, uh, the Sky Children of the Light. It is a um, third-person action adventure game. It uses sound and inter- it's a beautiful game, but mired 
I don't know why I did this. I don't don't know why I did it, but mired by free-to-play microtransactions that uh, unlock aspects of the game that make it slightly more interesting, which I don't... I know there's a bit of a history about Journey, and it most broke that game company, I believe. Many of the people and developers who worked on that game have since left um, because... It was a pain. It was a struggle. It was more... I mean, they, we hear of artists suffering for their art, but this was actually true. They did actually suffer because they were doing things that everyone was telling them not to do. They would. They were making a game where you said, oh, you can communicate, but only by a tone. No one does that. This is so... It, all these... They make... They, they broke every rule they could find. And every time they approached someone or pitched it to someone, described it to them, they were told, no, no, no. And they did it anyway. And it is now the most celebrated game of all time, for good or ill. Some people loathe Journey. There are people out there who detest what, what Journey is, and that's them. It's not for me. I'm a big fan of the game, and I'm happy that it was ported over to the PS4. But for this, I'm not going to go into too much detail, because I don't want people to play it. I don't want people to experience it. It is not a, a pleasant experience. It works perfectly fine on mobile platforms. Um, I do have a... I, I mean, I had a... Uh, an iPhone X, I now have an iPhone 11 Pro, so it's more than fine and more than capable to run this game. That's not the problem. The problem is it's just callous, commercial. Don't understand where this comes from because this is the antithesis of that game company. For me, one of my fondest memories, fondest memories of E3, and I've been to E3 a few times. Uh, I don't go anymore. Because it's, yeah. um, and stumbling out, and there was the Staples Center just outside. And that game company had a small table outside. Don't know why. And there was Austin Wintry there as well. And they were handing out T-shirts and things <laughs> of for, for Journey. And I went, oh, could I have one? Said, yeah, what size? I, you know, gave him a size. I still have it. This is my most treasured gaming T-shirts. We've all got them. Mm. But this one, I treasure it because it's an extraordinary thing. That happened. I met some extraordinary people, but something's happened to them now, and they're not the company they were. Because if they were, they wouldn't have made this. And I don't know what it is. Uh, it's uh, normally they would they would go to someplace else with their games. They wouldn't actually try to recreate something else, but turn it into a strange um, free to play game. No one. <sighs> I don't get it. I don't get it. The whole iOS platform um, gaming wise took a massive nosedive about three or four years ago because people rapidly realised it was a massive race to the bottom. Um, and it's only been now being rescued thanks to Apple intervening and creating Apple Arcade. And that's another discussion for another time. But for me, I, I don't want to divulge too much about this game other than it is ultimately, and this wrong, and you could say I'm oversimplifying, but ultimately it is Journey in a, in a, in a mobile platform with free-to-play mechanics that were full of time gates and function. Like there's a phrase I use to pay to function, where you have to pay. You know, you have to give money in to make the game function as it was originally intended to function. There's a lot of mm -hmm. games out there like that, and it's just it's just really cynical. That's the word I was looking for. Yes, this is a cynical thing to do for that game company, a company that I've lauded and. Uh, uh, for many years, but not this. This is a massive misstep for them, and stay away. Vote with your wallets, or not, as the case may be, and just, it's not for anyone. It doesn't, it's not, it's not a pleasant experience, really.
Yeah. Um, I, I kind of get the sense that a lot of the talent left the studio. Yeah. You know, it, it goes back to remind you that game studios are only, you know, studios by name. They have legal ownership over certain intellectual properties, but really the things that give them life and magic are the people that work there. And when those people go elsewhere, sometimes, you know, sometimes, sometimes studios can persist and can create some incredible things. You know, sometimes the people, the real talent had instilled such a, uh, um, such a culture of, of passion and excellence and talent. They've, they've left such a good pool of people to learn from that, you know, the studio can blossom into something on its own, even after losing some of its core founders and talent. Uh, but sometimes yeah, it just doesn't go that way. <laughs> and I think that's what we're starting to see here. Um, I'll be interested to see if that game company does something interesting again in the future. But um, yeah, you're probably better to just follow the uh, the directors of the games that you've appreciated in the past as they've gone on to uh, other projects rather than um, rather than just sticking with this one company's CV for as, as long as it goes, just riding that, that ship out to sea. Yeah, this, this applies to that game company. Doesn't apply to Supergiant games. They're still great. <laughs> There's some nice art direction and stuff like that, but I, uh, yeah, it just feels wrong to have to pay to use some of the game's core functions because it disincentivizes you from doing the types of things that the game seems to want to push you towards doing in the first place. And when you're dealing with things that are kind of like metaphorical for emotional experiences of connecting with other people, that really muddies the message in a way that almost outright like works against what the point seems to be. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a confused product. Um, and uh, yeah, let's just leave it at that. Yeah. Leave it at that. Thank you. Going from the sky to the stars, I want to swing by Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, which is uh, a game that I didn't know what to think about beforehand. Um, published by EA, so my expectations were very low, but developed by Respawn. So, you know, they have a lot of talent in that studio. So who knows? Maybe they could pull us through. If any of EA Studios could pull this through, it would be Respawn Entertainment. And uh, it turned out it's it's kind of a mixed bag, but overall, I ended up really enjoying it. I have heard the criticisms coming from people that have not enjoyed it, and I will not say that I disagree with any of those perspectives, but I I enjoyed it myself. It's a single-player adventure driven by a pretty good cast of characters, actually, um, that gets all the more interesting towards the end, unfortunately, as... Uh, some of the most uh, interesting characters are introduced within the last two hours of the game. And it's like, oh, I, I want a sequel just so I could spend more time with them. You end up putting together a pretty cool crew uh, of uh, characters kind of zipping about the galaxy. Um, but uh, anyways, for future sequels, I'm sure the main character himself is actually kind of a kind of a bland nothing of a character, which is too bad. But whatever. He's 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 good enough. He's the uh, the typical young white man they have to put on the cover so that they can explore more char more interesting characters in the actual game itself. He's ginger as well, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a shock. Yeah, 
adversity there for you. Yeah, so it's not it's not <laughs> the uh, the standard you know grizzled brunette that you see in uh, in most of these games, but you know it's uh, it's a weird mixture of genres, an interesting mixture of influences, which is kind of what I like about it, and is also kind of plays into one of the main complaints that I've heard about it from people that dislike the game who say that, you know, it is a mixture of of Jedi Outcast and Sekiro Shadows Die Twice and Metroid Prime and all these games that do everything that this game does better. A lot of the people that don't like this game say, yeah, well, I've seen all this done better elsewhere, so why don't I just play those better games and for me i'm kind of like well it's not going to be a revolutionary game but it's a good enough version of things that i've liked in the past it has a nice star wars coat of paint on it i had a good time with it i'm not gonna lie it's a it is a jack of all trades master of none but it does a pretty good job at what it sets out to do and sometimes pretty good is all that you really need to turn into a pretty, you know, enjoyable gaming experience. So it's not a ringing endorsement, but it's a pretty good game. <laughs> I mean, that's really interesting, isn't it? Uh, I'm not, I don't want to devolve too much into marketing speak or, you know, um, is there space in the in the medium for a pretty good AAA game? And I don't know. I mean, this is EA. This is a company that's obsessed with financial growth at any cost, as we know. And um, for it to finally release a single-player game, with that's it. No DLC, as far as I'm aware. Um, it's just the, the experience. They're just delivering experience, which is... I haven't heard of them play, make a game like this in many years. And all of a sudden, they go, fine, here's a single-player game. I bet it doesn't sell. Oh, damn it. And it did. And it has. I hear what you say about oh, it's just it takes aspects and mechanics from other games, but there's other those other games with better experiences. So why play this? My re- my reaction to that is is um, well, it's Star Wars. I yeah. mean, in this it's the particular game. There's one part where you it's not a spoiler. I saw a video of it and it's perfectly fine. People talk about it. You do get to actually pilot. Is it like the word drive? Drive's better way. An ATAT. Come on, <laughs> or at at. I would pronounce it. Stop it. Just it, it, you're in the bloody like driver's seat of one of those things. We've we've you know in many Star Wars games we've driven ATSTs absolutely, but at that come on, uh, and uh, at that, that was a thing, and it's a beautiful game. In many regards, there are some bits that are janky, and this still yeah, for sure not quite quite there. And I'm looking forward to playing it when it when it's a uh, you know twenty quid because that's what I'm going to mm-hmm. do. <laughs> I mean, it's not a game I'm going to rush out to get. Because thankfully, we're going to live in a time where there's some phenomenal quality games that do offer better experiences than this. So I'm going to go there for that. And then when, you know, early next year, maybe March time, this will be dropping down to 20, 30 pounds or 30, 20 pounds or whatever. And that's when I'll probably think about getting it. And that's what I do. You know, it's just, it's not a game I've been jumping up and down. Oh, this is exciting because I was a massive fan of Dark Forces and Jedi Academy and stuff. They were amazing games. But look at the time. Look at, don't play them now. Just don't, 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 don't do that. Uh, uh, because the character, when he's walking around, looks like he's he wants to go to the bathroom. And 
but it's it it was a, it was a start, you know. A lot of the stuff back then was a start. Whereas this, it's it's a, certainly a joy to behold and to see. And uh, for the feedback we get, a lot of people love it. Uh, but like I think you're right. There's, there are better experiences out there. But damn it, it's Star Wars, everyone. Yeah, and it does a very good job of being Star Wars. Um, for being such a huge IP, it's um, it is a surprisingly mixed bag. Of, uh, I mean, especially for a Disney IP, uh, it seems like a game that kind of got away with some stuff without a lot of oversight. Uh, there are parts of the game that are just stunningly directed. Like there's some incredible direction um, in in portions of the game. There's a there's a bit really early on where you're pursuing somebody through a uh, train carriage, and you're kind of going through multiple cars of the train. And uh, it's kind of emptying out as you get there until you come across a locked door that you can't get through and you turn around and then you're in the hallway of a Death Star. And it's like, whoa, this is this imperial style. It's it's so you just immediately kind of are put into this what must be a memory or a dream sequence or an imagination uh, imagination or something like that. And it's just like, that's so cool that like they use this kind of like representative metaphorical storytelling in a very straightforward you know triple a mainstream action game um there's some really nice little bits and pieces like that and then there are some parts that just like where the mood and tone and style of the game are just like off the wall like how can these things exist in one game you know there's there's one planet where you are essentially genociding a group of savage natives, which is unfortunate. Um, you, uh, ah, that's, yeah, that's a, it's a real, a real dark turn that makes you feel like a very bad person. Uh, and then there's another planet that I feel has, uh, that must be a series of small references to other platformer games. Because there are Sonic Adventure bounce pads, there are Mario 64 slides, which are also on other worlds, there's walking out on the edges of branches to pick up collectibles, like in Click Clock Woods and Banjo-Kazooie, it's like, all these things concentrated on one planet make me think that they know what they're doing, and it's like, how are Sonic Adventure bounce pads in the same game as, like, intense lightsaber battle against this woman who's trying to hunt down the remaining Jedi. Like, it's just such a mishmash of things. Yeah, but my retort to that is, have you seen Star Wars? Yeah, exactly. In that way, it's kind of the most honest <laughs> honest interpretation of the series that you could possibly have. And uh, I... It I kind of rips off so much stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to cut through there. <laughs> Sorry, Ryan. But I'm getting excited now. But I love the fact that Star Wars is ripping off a lot of other yeah, stuff. I mean, we, 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 we George Lucas, the bearded man himself, admits to you know being influenced by a whole raft of other genres. Mm -hmm. and yet, you know, I mean, for years, uh, for a very long time, I should say, the parts where the the, the space battles in the in the original edit of Star Wars was replaced with World War Two fighter plane footage mm -hmm. to while they were doing the special effects. This was well known. And uh, it's all about, you know, you look at the fighter pilots and how, well, the, how the, the spacecraft are flying around in Star Wars. It's nonsensical. <laughs> <laughs> Why have they got wings? Why? <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't make, it's, it's not 2001. But the point being, you know, they've drawn from a lot of, a lot of genres. I love the fact that Respawn are going, you know what? Let's do the same, 
only for video games. Brilliant. And people yeah. aren't getting that. It's satire. It's sat- It's also satirical, but it's also a wonderful reflection of the original source mm-hmm. material. So there it is. My rant is over. But, it's, uh, it's very much a labor I think of love. People, you know. It's a, uh, a really fun game. I, I really enjoyed it. The ending is definitely worth experiencing. The, uh, there's a lot of great moments throughout the game. Uh, I really like the cast of characters for the most part. And uh, overall, it's just, it's a of a fun game it's a it's a pretty good game and that's that's kind of all that i wanted it to be and i'm uh i'm very satisfied that's all you can say yes you can all you can say it's a pretty good game <laughs> and and and, that, and that's more than that's more than the endorsement i need but i'm not going to pay 60 yeah, pounds absolutely for wait for it to come down not, in price not not just um, wait I mean, there's going to be new, there's going to be sales in the new year. You know, we have our own Black Friday, which is Boxing Day sales. I'm hoping that it will drop. It's unlikely, though. Unlikely, in my experience, doesn't normally happen um, because a game like that that's sold really well, it's unlikely. But or just get it on an Origin see. Access premiere like I did. You know, fifteen dollars for or whatever the regional equivalent is for a month, and it's not going to take you more yeah, than a month. It's, it's, it's probably a twelve quid or something. And I have a, a PC that's more than capable of running it. Although I do need to replace the CPU, but that's a discussion for another time. Mm. I'm just scared of replacing the motherboard and then reinstalling Windows. But apparently, you don't have to do that anymore. I didn't Thanks. know that. But anyway, yeah. Okay, right. Let's go. Next game. Then. Right. This one is one of yours. Sunless Skies. Oh yeah. It's it. Sorry. <laughs> Sunless Skies. Well, still in the stars, aren't we? I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Steampunk. Steampunk space exploration. Mars 1889 uh, is a game or uh, environment or sort of like a, you know, as if Victorians took over Mars in a strange sort of alternate reality where steam power could get people to Mars. <laughs> don't. This is another one. This is um, Sunless Seas uh, was the first in this title, but then they released Sunless Skies. And this is um, set in the space, kind of, and you are controlling a steam engine that flies in space between places that are in space. I said space a lot there. Um, and you are a captain of this and you have a crew. Uh, and how can I, this is a game. It is a sandbox game, space exploration sandbox game, but it's a 2D plane. You don't have full cockpit view. You're controlling the the steam engine from top and it's beautifully animated, beautifully, the steam's everywhere. Space is very colourful. There's lots of nebula and lots of fungus. I don't, I don't. Any, <laughs> and it's all, it's all very peculiar. But you have an attachment to your crew. You have to keep them fed. You have to keep them watered. You have to keep fuel going, and uh, you also get stressed because you more explore out inside from your ship because you are controlling your ship and you're going on missions. You're going on main missions. You're going on there's little submissions as well. You take passengers. You take cargo. It's all got very similar to um, to Rebel Galaxy Outlaw in many regards. Mm-hmm. So obviously I'm drawn to certain titles. Uh, I do like this kind of thing. It's quite difficult, though. There are left, thankfully, there's difficult dif- devils of difficulty, and I would certainly recommend you knock it down a few before you just have a go because it's tough because it's very easy to go wandering off into the nebulas and wandering off into the area, and then there's no civilization. If you've got no civilization, there's no means to refuel or to get supplies. And if that starts to happen, you'll find people start starving. And one or two things, if you start jettisoning corpses out of the 
ship or you start eating each other, which mm. is true. That's that's a thing. So you've got to be very, very, very careful and very, very careful. If you don't, it's very it's very easy to get killed if you start off with a regular setting. I would recommend notching it down a bit and actually explore the game for what it is. And then as you replay it, which is there's, there's new seeds and it's random, procedurally generated, all that kind of thing, um, you actually find yourself re-experiencing it in a different way. It's just New Game Plus, the... Is some of the skies reeks of that, um, and the the artwork is exquisite. It's all uh, the, the the Victorian sort of sensibilities of the the writing and the the, the uh, engagement with people. They all very they all where they say seven words when one would have done, um, and it's lovely. And it's it's, it's a lot to read. Uh, it can be, and it, but the actual art direction is incredible. I love the fact that when you approach an area you haven't been before, rather than it being sort of like um, a big hovering sort of like glowing text or something. It just gently fades in. And as you approach it, the the, the text suddenly becomes clear. It's just little things like that. It's beautifully done, beautifully done. And combat is really fascinating. It's all momentum driven. And you've got to swing your, sh- your your little steam engine around. And you could do broadsides as well if you have those weapons. Uh, or you've got sort of shotguns or rockets or a cannon. Um, and uh, so satisfying when you blow up another ship and you go over there. Uh, and um, you can also find wrecks as well. And then you, um, when you do that, the game suddenly changes into something else. It becomes a, uh, a choose-your-own-adventure game with uh, skill rolls and checks and things. So it becomes a little bit of a role-playing game. And where you actually say, well, do I go deep into the ship and see if I can find something exciting or do I get out and just strip it for parts and stuff? It's risk-reward, that kind of thing. It's all all there. Um, there's layers upon layers for this game. It gives back as much as you put into it. It's an exceptionally well-designed, well-put-together game. It has was in early access for a very long time and it shows because, I say that because it shows in that the final polished product is quite exceptional because they did use early access in the correct way, i.e. they got feedback from their players to determine what was right, what was wrong, what was working, what wasn't working. And at the moment, it's out on Mac, Linux, and PC. I played it on the PC. Um, and it uses controls. You can use a, a regular Xbox um, One X controller, or you can use mouse and keyboard. Both work quite well. The moment for moment to play really is you leaving a station um, it could be New Westminster or something like that, and you go flying off, uh, and uh, and then you go to you try to find the other place or try to find another station or do you basically explore? If you've managed to succeed, find somewhere that you can dock, then you can, uh, and uh, then you sort of load up, do some saves, maybe get some more crew. Uh, and also, you, your your character, your your captain, they level up. They get certain abilities, and it's extremely granular. If I haven't if it hasn't come across yet, I hope it has now. But yes, it's something that you can't sort of nip in and out of either. You've got to got to dive into it and uh, and and exp- stay in the world for a while to get used to it. But it it does it is quite well rewarded. I have had. Fail better games on as guests on the on the podcast, so a little bit biased there. So I did get uh, uh, so again full disclosure. I did get uh, um, a free code for the game, but it doesn't uh, diminish my enjoyment or undermine my uh, opinion of the game at all. Why would it? Um, so yes, um, Sunless Sky is a wonderful follow up to Sunless Seas, um, 
and one I, I would strongly recommend. It's, uh, you like I said, start off in a much easier setting because it is very punishing. Um, it doesn't give you, uh, if, if you push, I mean, what, the extraordinary mechanic of stress, which is very much like Darkest Dungeon, is implemented in Sunless Skies as well. So if you are out in space for too long without any respite, you will suffer terrible things. Terrible things start happening to you and you start slowly going mad. It's quite strange. He just basically gets space sickness, if you will, mm. and you have to um, have to. Uh, yeah, it's called terror. They represent it as, as terror, and it's a, it's a, a balance. It's just a, a very obvious scale of risk. <laughs> it's rather than something implied, it's actually a bar on the bottom left-hand corner saying this is going up. You might want to tone it down a bit. And then it's a uh, yeah, it's it's an excellent game. Um, but like I said, uh, if you play it first off and you just play the standard difficulty setting, which is what I normally do with most games, you will have a tough, too tough a time of it and it will bounce off of it. Don't do that. Just um, swallow some pride and just <laughs> notch it down a, a bit. Get an understanding of how the game works, how much expenditure you're going to push out, what things are going to hurt, you know, what's going to deplete, the rate of depletion, all that sort of stuff. All the managing the resources you need to get the things you need to get done and what's important. And, uh, yeah, really, really fun and entertaining game, but uh, very deep, very deep. So, you know, if you want to delve into it, uh, approach it with uh, with respect for knowing that. All right, that was Sunless Skies. Let's move into Superliminal. Uh, this is a game that debuted on the Epic Game Store, and maybe that's it for now. Yeah. Yeah. This uh, this is the game that I've been familiar with for a long time, actually, as it's uh, appeared at many of the Seattle Indies Expos under a previous name, Museum of Simulation Technology. And it's uh, it's an interesting premise um, in that it's all kind of perspective puzzles. Well, at least it starts out as being perspective puzzles. There's some uh, kind of clever uh, stuff that it does later on as well. But, you know, how I guess the best way to describe it is as you it's kind of like a like a forced perspective effect uh, on a, a movie camera that if something is held close to the camera, it appears huge. And if it's held, uh, if it's far away from the camera, it looks really tiny. And so you can use that to, you know, hold your little Godzilla action figure up against the skyline of a city to make it look like it's stomping through the city, you know, that kind of thing. So essentially it does that where as you click on an item to interact with it, it basically locks it in your perspective, it locks the size of the object in your perspective. And then based on where you place it in the environment, it will grow or shrink to accommodate that, um, the size of, you know, what it looks like at that point in time, I'm, I'm doing a horrible job of describing it, but you know, it's like, a if you have a, if you have a, uh, a chess piece and you just press your face right up against it and pick it up and then place it down, then it, it'll, it'll become huge in the world because it was huge in your perspective at the point at which you were interacting with it. And so you can use this to solve all kinds of different types of puzzles. And then it, it does grow and expand in interesting and weird ways from, from there on. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting perspective puzzler. It's a nice, uh, uses this kind of like museum, uh, type of, uh, environment to create some really interesting and unique set pieces. 
I'm uh, yeah, I'm interested in diving back into this one. I spent more time in the betas over the years than I have in the finished product, but it's uh, it's a cool little game. I, I take it you're familiar with this one as well. Very. Um, last game I played at PAX West. Sorry for mentioning that show again, everyone. But uh, both Ryan and I do attend, mm-hmm. and uh, a good friend of mine, Matt Pascal, who works for Activision, he actually helps with the Call of Duty um PR stuff, the community manager, sorry, over there at Division UK. And uh, he grabbed me and says, Chris, you, you have to play this game. This game is made for you. <laughs> and, he, and he just dragged me across. And uh, unfortunately, you were ill at the time, otherwise we would have both been there, I suspect. Um, but uh, my day job uh, is all about thinking about 3D space and how things project and work. This just, it starts off with what you described. Mm-hmm. You take a, like a small child children's brick and then just, you know, bring it closer to you. And by doing so, it actually becomes big. <laughs> and then you put a ramp out, and you, it just messes with perspective initially. Then it starts messing with other things. It has the same atmosphere and humour as the Portal games, which I miss. Mm-hmm. The same sort of dry wit, desert dry wit, as uh, as GLaDOS. Uh, and the, as the announcer starts blaring out things at you and... Oh, well done for that test. Here's another one. And uh, you're definitely being tested for something. You don't know what. I played it for about half an hour at the show, and I felt that this would probably only last another two and a half. It's very short, isn't it? Yeah, I, I'm not uh, all the way through the 1.0, but um, it it was short in the versions that I had played pre-release, so I don't know how that speaks to the final product. No, but I understand it. Nothing wrong with that, because Portal was only two hours long as well, if you remember the mm-hmm. original one. It's the... Second one was eight hour, eight or nine hours long. I haven't got this yet. I might do. I'm not sure how much it is on Epic Game Store. I'm not sure. Just as a side note, apparently I meant to hate Epic Game Store. I'm not sure what's going on there. Yeah, uh, uh, everyone. I guess we should. Uh, I, we should be more negative on all these Epic Game Store exclusives. Boo, right? I don't know. Whatever. Boo, hiss. I don't. I don't understand. Okay. Um. Don't know why the kids don't like them. I'm not sure they're delivering games. I don't care. It's just another platform. Mm -hmm. Like Steam. I remember Steam when that came out and everyone hated it. That hasn't changed, has it really? Okay, right. Yeah, so Superliminal. Lovely game of um, thinking outside the box. Yeah, that's accurate, I would say. Yeah. (laughs) It's trite and and, and, uh, horrible thing to say, but ultimately that's what it is. It's about thinking thinking more, you know, is real? Is it really real? Because remember there's a game recently where... Was it recently four or four years ago where you'd um you turn a corner, you see a staircase and go, Oh, that's that's a staircase going down, that's strange. Okay, you then look round, go look back again, and then the staircase would have changed. Because it's a video game, it allows you to do that. And it was the concept of you only what was what you could see was what's actually mattered, not what was behind mm-hmm. you. What was behind you would have actually changed. I like that stuff, but sometimes it can be real real brain mush and turn you into a jelly man. That was super liminal. Moving on to Trials Rising, another very different, uh, very different game to be transitioning into. This is a uh, extension of the Trials series that has been running for a very long time now. Ever since it was a, a flash game on Newgrounds.com, uh, this is a uh, game. It's a side-on view. Uh, essentially, you are a motorbike rider who is going through obstacle courses and you know, flipping all around and trying to basically just land on your wheels at all times, uh, 
as you go through more and more perilous and uh, tricky, puzzly types of environments, it's it's quite satisfying. It's um, you know, one of those kind of quick restart when you die type things, and just try to get through these courses. And um, I uh, I really enjoy Trials. It's it's just a really nice palate cleanser of a game. Um, I've been playing Trials Rising on Nintendo Switch, which is probably not the ideal platform to play it on. Uh, not only because of the performance, which is pretty good. It's it's a reasonable way to play the game. Um, but also the game doesn't have, uh, or the system doesn't have analog triggers, which, um, which Trials uses. Uh, so you either have to, it's all kind of like all or nothing for your gas and brakes, or you could use the right stick as a modifier for the trigger, which is clumsy and uh, not great. But um, that hasn't really impacted my experience too much. I'm probably not going to end up on the leaderboards anyways. So uh, whatever. I just kind of like getting through the different stages and the stories. And there's some really creative stuff in here. I like uh, there's a level that takes place within a Hollywood movie set. And so you kind of switch between a kind of a pre-rendered version of like the fantasy of what's happening in the movie. And uh, then the special effects will turn off and then you are kind of in the you know, the, the studio that's blue screen and the props are made of cardboard and stuff like that. And that's pretty fun. Um, so, you know, it's, it's another good trials game. Um, the menus are still a little bloated. There's some, uh, microtransaction stuff in there. That's a bit gross, but otherwise it's, uh, another good trials game, a pretty reliable series, I would say. Um, but also, yeah, it's pretty much what you are going to come to expect. So I don't have a ton to say about that one. Trials Rising. I hope that series continues for a while still. Yeah, it's a, it's a something Ubisoft has latched onto. I can't remember how that happened, but it did. But it is a thing they now publish. I, I like the first few games, but then I've got really frustrated with it. My continuing deteriorating hand-to-eye coordination hasn't helped. And uh, I, it's, I get to the case where I know what to do but I'm just physically incapable of doing it. <laughs> and uh, that's why I, I tend to avoid playing the Trials games. It's sad because they they do tick some boxes that I'm interested in, but I'm sorry, um, not for me, not anymore. Let's, uh, let's move on to, uh, we're coming towards the end of the list here. And for those of you who have listened to all five of these sessions, then we thank you for sticking with us for so long. Uh, just three more games to go in 2019, and then we'll catch you in 2020. So the next one is Trover Saves the Universe. This is a VR game, but it's VR optional, which is uh, quite nice, actually. You can pick this up on both PC and PS4, and it's a uh, a really a really silly game, a comedy game, that is developed by Squanch Games, uh, helmed by uh, Justin Roiland of uh, Rick and Morty fame. So really, as with all of uh, Justin Roiland stuff, your mileage will vary based on how uh, funny or annoying you find his uh, performances to be. I really enjoyed his work in um, Accounting Plus, which is another VR game. And so that's what really kind of got me interested in this title in the first place. Uh, essentially, you are playing a character called a Cherorphian, uh, a, a race of aliens who just kind of hang out all day in chairs. And your two dogs um, have been kind of absorbed by this evil 
alien that used their power to uh, create some sort of, you know, global control or universal control over the universe. Some awful evil that he's doing. Some these are powering his evil magic. Uh, and you are being recruited, well, kind of conscripted by Trover, uh, who has to escort you around the galaxy. Um, he he is not bound to a chair, so you spend most of your time controlling him. Uh, the chair, Cherophian, the character that you're playing as, is just kind of a a way to get uh, to uh, kind of an excuse to put you wearing a VR helmet into this world. And you're encountering all these silly characters all across the galaxy. Um, I I personally find the style of humor to be pretty funny. It's a little crass and very, uh, very like a lot of yelling, a lot of like cursing in a way that feels very juvenile and a lot of like very juvenile humor as well. But I, I really like I really like characters that feel like they're figuring out what they're trying to say while they're saying it. And you can get the sense of them kind of stumbling over their words. Like it just makes it feel very endearing. And then when you have somebody who has like really good kind of improvisational comedic timing behind it, then uh, like that combination really kind of like strikes a good chord with me. So I can kind of get past the juvenile aspects of it and just really appreciate the, uh, the performances exhibited here. But yeah, it's, it's it's a very silly adventure across the galaxy. You're meeting all kinds of weird and crazy aliens. And uh, I just, I don't know. It's it's fun to hop in and out of. But again, your mileage will vary depending on how uh, how well you get along with that, uh, with that style of humor. But I will say it has the best tutorial that I've ever seen in a video game. It's, uh, it's hilarious. You should at least check out the first few minutes. Um, either on YouTube or uh, or in your playthrough of the game. So um, if you enjoyed Accounting Plus, then this is probably more uh, stuff that you'll enjoy as well. I noticed on, it's on PSVR, which I, I'm, I'm a fan of that platform. Some of my favorite games are on that system. So uh, I might have to check that out. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a real weird one. So it might, it might gel okay. well. It might gel with you. It might really annoy Don't you know. so it's always hard to predict with this one <laughs> all right well i i like league of gentlemen so i'm probably, but probably do right. play it in vr if you can because the uh flat yeah. screen controls are fine but not great you know it's all about okay. it's all about like you have to look at things to interact with them there's no right. cursor in the middle of the screen so you just kind of have to like you know there's a little bit of wiggle room as far as flat screen controls go but like when you're in vr like it's very clear like you could just look at something and that's that so anyways, all That's right, good. on to Unruly Heroes. Uh, this is one that was announced at uh, at Nintendo of Europe's indie showcase that they did earlier this year and released either the same day or like a week afterwards or something like that. But it, it's uh, it's an interesting game that I wanted to like more than I have, uh, which is I don't know. It's it's by a lot of the same people who did Rayman Origins and Rayman Legends, which are two of my favorite games of all time. Like I love the recent Rayman games; they're fantastic platformers, and I love platformers. Like two D platformers are kind of like my bread and butter. And so, you know, this game had a little bit more mature tone. It's based on the uh, Journey to the West, the Chinese fable. Uh, it has a very accomplished art style. Um, it's not really grounded by any, any franchise that it was trying to 
emulate in any way beforehand. So it was really like a lot of freedom uh, that they had to explore new territory, do new things. And I'm just not sure that I gelled with it as much as I was hoping to. Um, it, it's a beautiful game. It controls really well. It, it, you know, it's, it's well designed, but the combat, instead of being Rayman's typically kind of like one punch, one kill type of thing, the character, the enemies have health bars. You have a health bar. Uh, it, you know, there's a little bit more kind of like combat involved, but I, um, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I'm not like a hundred percent sold on the way that it plays. You're constantly switching between four characters, which have different abilities, but uh, I don't know. It's just, they, you need certain characters to solve certain puzzles, but certain characters can also be killed. And so you might have to wait for that character to like float back on screen, new super Mario Bros style with a little bubble that you have to pop so that you can use them again. Um, and I don't know. It's like, the puzzles are kind of prescriptive and obvious which character you're supposed to be using. So it doesn't really give me that satisfaction of solving the puzzle. And the combat is just like a little bit too much friction and a little bit too loose of controls to really be that exciting. Uh, the combat or the um, platforming is still good, but it just doesn't really have that same magic that Rayman, Rayman had. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I've watched some reviews and some people are heralding it as being like an exceptional platformer. And so I'm about three or four levels in. So if I got further in, and these are pretty sizable levels, um, if I got further in, maybe it starts to really come together. But so far, it's just one that doesn't really grip me as much as I was hoping it did. So I'm, I'm a bit disappointed. I prefer Rayman, but uh, it's, it's a beautiful game. I'm glad that they're trying new things. I'm glad that they're still getting out there and putting out 2D platformers, which I know don't sell that well. So, you know, these are labors of love. Um, and I hope that there's more like it in the future. But this one just, I don't know, it was, it was a bit of a miss for me. So, uh, I don't know, give it a shot. And if you like it, then uh, maybe tell me what you like about it. But for me, I just didn't, uh, didn't end up connecting with it, unfortunately. Not one I'm familiar with either, but I will definitely have a look. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it's on Xbox One, PC, yeah. Switch, and PS4, so it's all the things. Yep. Launched on Switch, and uh, I think it came to the other platforms later. Anyways, okay. that is Unruly Heroes. And then the last game that we're going to talk about in 2019 before kicking into the new year is Wargroove. This is, uh, yeah. this is an interesting title. This is... Uh, this is a uh, very uh, blatant spiritual successor to Advance Wars, which is great because there's not really any games that are doing Advance Wars in the very specific thing that Advance Wars did well in the modern era. You know, that team had uh, kind of focused all of their attention onto Fire Emblem instead of splitting their attention between the uh, Famicom Wars series and uh, the Fire Emblem series. And there hasn't really been a a Wars game since the GameCube, I believe. Uh, so, you know, open goal for uh, a new team, uh, this time Chucklefish Games, which has a which has pedigree and some beautiful sprite animation is kind of what they're known for. And so really it's a it's a match made in heaven 
but uh, I'm not sure I really got, again, what I wanted out of this game. Um, the battles are, uh, they're, they're beautiful to look at. Uh, they're, they, they control very well. You know, this game has a, a good base of mechanics built into it. It's just that everything felt very prescriptive. Everything felt like a puzzle with one solution. And if you just employed the wrong strategy for the battle, then that's, you basically lost, you know, you, you will lose the battle. 45 minutes down the line and then you have to try it all over again from the beginning and try to determine what went wrong what you need to do differently and it's just you know i I want these types of games to be wars that could go either way and that requires you know strategizing on the field and reacting to things as they happen you know valkyria chronicles uh fire emblem that kind of thing this just felt like a puzzle they wanted me to do a certain thing, and it was all about just kind of like guessing or perceiving what the intended route through that particular battle was rather than uh, reacting as things happen. So, uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm not really sure about it. I like the character designs are super strong. The animation is fantastic. The voice acting is pretty good. Um, there's a lot to like in this game. There's a fully fledged campaign creator, which is incredibly impressive that they just launched that with you know built into the game and so people can can put out their own entire campaigns if they want to which is fantastic um but yeah just to me it just uh gameplay wise wasn't what i was looking for and uh that's that's a bit too bad but it's it's a good package and i hope people will use that creator i'm sure people already have to create some pretty incredible things so it's one that might continue to have legs down the line, uh, as many of these creator type games do. But yeah, it just didn't really scratch the itch for me uh, initially. I really liked it. Good. But there's aspects <laughs> of it that are problematic. I think the biggest one for me is the single player campaign mode. Um, is it single player? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. And um, that's a problem in that some of the missions can go on for an hour. You can't save, you can't walk away, you can't pause. You just you got to finish it, and that can be a problem. But for the arcade mode, is nice because that that's less of a puzzle, because less of a a funneling as you're describing, uh, because it's actually you play different characters or different, and then you can actually then the maps are balanced. They're like they, 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 both sides have got the same amount of resources available to them, and so the units you just have to out strategize and tactically play the other side which is much more entertaining. And I understand the multiplayer games when people are making maps for multiplayer engagements, again, much more engaging because um, you have the same resources, it's not so much of a puzzle. And ironically, there is actually a puzzle mode in the game where you actually have to finish a level with one move. So you have to do the thing, achieve a thing, but with only one turn, which teaches a lot about the rest of the game and... There's a lot. There's a lot here. I mean, the amount of content that Wargroove has is phenomenal. And I think the editor, that's quite a thing. You know, a campaign editor. I mean, there's a map editor, yeah, but a campaign editor? That's that's very impressive. And it's on all platforms as well, not just PC. And there's cross-play with, with other platforms as well. So you can't, you know, you know, take that away either. It's um I played on the Switch personally. And uh I do enjoy it, but like I said, the big negative is the fact that you gotta 
you've got to finish those missions. You've got to finish the combat in the single-player campaign. Um, I do like the dogs, of course. The dogs don't get killed, do they? Just um, They get tired and run away, which is lovely. Um, but, um, yeah, I... I um, I did like Wargroove. It's not. It is not the um, Advanced Wars replacement that we all want, but it's really close. All right. Well, that does it for us this year. It's been a. It's been a pleasure, everyone who's been uh, listening to the podcast, especially these end of year wrap ups. It's a tremendous amount of content that we put out uh, right at the end of the year. So I'm expecting that there are people that are going to be hearing these words for the first time, probably in May or June or later. Uh, so <laughs> More than likely. yeah, it's, uh, it's been fun. Anyways, there's going to be a more formal wrap up with, uh, me and Leon, uh, right after this, but I just wanted to thank Chris O'Regan for, uh, for joining me to chat about some of these, uh, additional games here as we rounded out the year. Well, thank you, Ryan. And there we have it. Session five. Done. Oh, boy. That's it. Dusted. How's your mouse finger? Ah, uh, man, I've, uh, I feel like I should be um, swapping between left hand, right hand mouse, uh, trackballs, flight sticks, anything I can do to give my various appendages and fingers a rest. Um, mm. I don't know if I like <laughs> the way that that sentence ended up uh, ended up rounding out at the end. But sometimes yeah. you just kind of you, you follow a path and see where it takes you. Uh, <laughs> well, the the Microsoft adaptable controller probably lets you, you use go. most appendages. <laughs> Yeah, we can uh, we can shill right at the end of this too. <laughs> but uh, speaking of shilling, uh, we should just kind of round back. If you've enjoyed the tremendous effort that has gone into um, yeah. into these five sessions, um, then you can uh, support us on Patreon, patreoncom slash It all goes back into the show. At least I assume it does. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. uh it, it's all very graciously received and it does help us do not only this type of herculean effort but it keeps the lights on for the week-to-week shows that we put out we have four shows on the network now um that involve a ton of time and commitment from uh, a wide array of people all around the world every dollar every pound every euro Every yeah. lira that we receive is mm. is gratefully um, is gratefully received and uh, and does uh, does help tremendously with um, yeah. covering hardware. Yeah, and it's, software I mean, it's time. fair to say uh, without hyperbole, without that income, now I don't think Jay and I would still be doing all this anymore because it is a ridiculous amount of work, <laughs> and uh, and the financial support enables us to kind of justify it <laughs> so uh and the more we get the more justifiable it is if you will but also but yeah really just um the main thing is to uh spread the word if you enjoy mm-hmm. what we do don't forget to mention that on apple Podcasts or itunes i know it pops up and asks you to review things from time to time maybe that's just apps but yeah if you can pop in and give us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts the cana rinse show goes out in its two hour sub to our truncated form on spotify as well i think you can i don't know if you can heart things on there or something but anything like that or just tell your social media friends followers about us um all that stuff is great if you've enjoyed chris talking about some of the more independent 
uh, obscure stuff there. His stock in trade is the Sausage Factory podcast, which comes out on our sort of network on Fridays. He interviews the people who make those very games. Uh, and he goes all around the world, actually, uh, to all the various games events, talking to these people and finding out what they do and how they do it. And that's cool. And then don't forget, we also have uh, under our wing, we have Ryan and Ryan Heyman and Quintal's Thursday show, which is Playwright. And they are still somehow, even after <laughs> however long it is now, coming up with new game ideas. Yeah, we are in our third year and have not missed a week yet. So, um, yeah, those are brand new video game ideas that we just kind of we we formulate over the week. We pitch to one another and then we workshop them for 10 minutes and see what we come away with. It's usually something something wholly unique and it's only getting weirder and weirder as we have to yeah. scrape other parts of our brain for new ideas we've been at this for so long that yeah. like you know it's nothing is off limits at this point and uh that's that's exciting as far as i'm concerned <laughs> yeah I, i've said this uh, on a few podcasts recently when whenever plugging your stuff but i am genuinely impressed by the the ideas that come out of that show because uh yeah i, I think mine Although I, I definitely would consider myself somebody who would be a useful contributor to a games development project as a kind of consultant and somebody who's, you know, been playing games for a very long time and can articulate what, what he likes and doesn't like about them. It's a whole different thing to actually come up with concepts, I think, from nothing. Um, and I think the thing that I really want to stress about listening to Playwright is that the ideas that you guys come up with are way more interesting than I think you might ex uh, somebody might expect having not listened to the show. And also, if you just like puns, um, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of that going on. We do so. have to title every game, and uh, that's always an exercise in uh, in uh, dad jokes uh, primarily. But yeah. don't be sad; it's a good podcast regardless. <laughs> I'm not a dad, but I'm the right age for dad jokes. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's all the plugging done. Thank you to all the contributors. Well, I guess we should uh, circle back on just one more thing. I know that we mentioned it at the very top back in December of 2019, whenever you're listening to this. But if you have enjoyed uh, revisiting all of your favorites and potentially, I mean, hopefully new favorites from 2019, uh, then... Um, re-engage with uh, those titles in another consumable format on sound of play uh hunt back to um to january 1st we released sound of play 230 mm -hmm. in which i put together my 2019 mix of video game music we talked about that at the beginning of session one but just wanted to replug that here I mean, listen to Sound of Play in general, but if you're going to listen to anything and you've got all these 2019 games bumping around in your mind, then mm -hmm. uh, little selections from the soundtracks of each is a pretty good chaser to um, the the many, many, many hours of, of video game criticism you've just listened to. Good call. And with that, there'll be a little break from us now, especially if you are a non-Patreon. We'll be back earlier for the Patreon listeners with issue 401 of the Cane and Rinse podcast and another 50 shows coming throughout 2020. But I think for now, that's all I've got to say. Yeah, I, that's, uh, I mean, we've said a lot collectively <laughs> over the past five days of releasing these shows. So I'm, uh, yeah, let's, let's put the ribbon on this one. 
Let's push it out to sea and call 2019 finished. Done. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Happy New Year. Happy New Year.